a lockstep developed where people said, "Uh uh-huh, that's it. That's the solution. We're going to vaccinate our way out of this problem. We don't even need to worry about how to treat the problem. We don't need to hear about drugs to treat the problem. And the enthusiasm and the hubris for vaccination spread across academic medical centers all over the country. I saw a total shift on everything for the vaccines. Do you know major clinical trials with hydroxychloroquine were dropped, ivermectin, things were dropped. The backlash against hydroxychloroquine was so strong in Brazil and Australia. Uh, Do you know the second largest uh, producer of hydroxychloroquine, the plant was mysteriously burned down outside of Taipei? Uh, It was extraordinary what was going on. Doctors from Africa were telling us uh, that, um, you know, there were some type of mercenary people raiding the pharmacies at night and burning the hydroxychloroquine. It looked like it was already pre-decided that the current set of genetic vaccines were going to move forward. There wasn't going to be any discussion on early treatment. Of the 800,000 deaths that we are right now, I can tell you to a one, they've received either no or inadequate early treatment. I testified in the U.S. Senate, November 19, 2020. I told Americans under oath that 50% of the lives at that time could have been saved. We were at about 250,000 deaths, based on what I knew. I then testified on March 10, 2021 in the Texas Senate, sworn testimony. I upped that to 85% of the deaths could have been avoided. It seems to me early on there was an, an intentional very comprehensive suppression of early treatment in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. And it seemed to be completely organized and intentional in order to create acceptance for and then promote mass vaccination. If you want to see the Johns Hopkins planning seminar called the SPARS pandemic in 2017, where they had a symposium. People showed up. They wrote up their symposium findings. They published this. It says it's going to be a coronavirus. It's going to be related to MERS and SARS. It's going to come over here to the United States. It's going to shut down cities and frighten people. There's going to be confusion regarding a drug, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And we're going to utilize all that in order to railroad the population into mass vaccination. It's laid out in the Johns Hopkins SPARS pandemic training seminar. The only thing that got wrong was the year. They said it was going to be 2025. Instead, it landed a few years early. We're in what's called a mass formation psychosis. A mass psychosis is when there is a groupthink that develops that's so strong that it leads to something horrific. And the examples are these mass suicides that occur in these religious cults. The example is Nazi Germany, when people walk into gas chambers and were gassed. These horrific things, and, and four elements here, it's very important, Joe. First, there must be a period of prolonged isolation, lockdowns. Number two, there must be a, a, a withdrawal of things taken away from people that they used to enjoy. That's happened. Number three, there must be constant, incessant, free-floating anxiety all this news cycle, all the, the deaths and the hospitalizations, more, more variant mutant strains, everything, people becoming scared over and over again. And the last thing, number four, the capper. The capper is there must be a single solution offered by an entity in authority. And this case is clear. Worldwide, the solution was vaccination. Outrageous to be giving vaccines to young people because they they don't have a risk of a very very low risk of dying from COVID, so they they don't get a benefit. And when you look at the potential harm from these vaccines, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And certainly, repeated boosters is just going to be very 
uh, devastating, I think, in the long term. And um, it's just a I've done a lot of research and I, I really am beginning to understand exactly how the process takes place. And it's uh, very disturbing. Well, good evening, everybody. It's Carrie from the Stop Cafe and uh, in Mira, Alberta, and of course the Chris and Carrie Show. And full disclosure, this is actually not live. I've actually recorded this this afternoon because Chris and I will not be able to do a live tonight because we are actually going to be doing the Alberta Prosperity Project Ambassador Tour. We're in Calgary tonight. Um, and we're in Red Cliff or Medicine Hat on Sunday. We're in Red Deer next Friday. We're in Bingley the following Saturday, uh, which is basically Rocky Mountain House. And we're in Sherwood Park on November 19th. So we've got a pretty busy schedule. And it's tough to come up with any of these lives when uh, when we seem to be this busy. I'm, I'm, of course, busy with my own business. is, And uh, Chris is busy at the uh, Whistle Stop. But what I wanted to do is give you kind of a, a very brief summary on what happened last night and then uh, follow it up with some really good information that uh, that we we previously recorded uh, two interviews, one with uh, uh, obviously Dr. Peter McCullough and uh, Dr. Stephanie Sanaf as well. And I, I want to present those to you so that you have something to, to chew on for a little bit if you haven't watched those previously. So last night, there was a presentation put on by uh, Canadians for Truth, which is um, Joseph Burgo, Theo Fleury, and Jamie Soleil. And that happened at the Legacy Place in, in Red Deer. What a great event. Uh, thank you so much for those three in particular for putting it on. Thank you for everybody volunteering and, and uh, the, the facility itself. And of course, to be with uh, Dr. McCullough in the same room uh, as, as well. I just wanted to show you that we ended up uh, doing a quick post out on our Chris and Carrie Twitter. Uh, you may recognize those two there. And the, uh, the venue itself was great. It, uh, it held about 1,500 people. I believe it probably could have held between 1,800 and 2,000. There were actually quite a few seats up at the top. Now, uh, even though you'd be you'd be far away from stage, there wasn't a bad seat in in the entire theater. So, if you do get a chance to go back, I'm sh I'm sure Canadians for Truth will do another event there. But I wanted to bring up a couple of quick things that, uh, that my my takeaways, I guess, from from last night, and just like in the introduction where Dr. McCullough is talking about uh, how this was all brought in and basically was brought in through uh, an intentional uh, fear in order for people to take the, the quick update uh, uptake on the, uh, on the vaccination. And that, that seemed to be an underlying score in the entire presentation that uh, Dr. McCullough did yesterday, which was, which was, which was great. But, Two big takeaways. Number one that he said numerous times throughout the presentation is that we are going to have another pandemic. There's no ifs, ands, or about, about, uh, buts about it. And it's a matter of what do we do? Well, we're so much wiser. Uh, I, I believe we're so much wiser over what's happened so far. 
um, and, and especially sharing this sort of information out there and letting people know that they do have alternatives and, and especially question everything. Uh, no matter what seems to happen in the next pandemic, question it. Uh, don't be afraid to do that. Uh, I, I joked last night with, there were so many people that, that did come up and said hello last night. And I, I, you know, you have no idea how that fills my heart when, when that happens. And, um, but if you see me or Chris anywhere, by all means, don't be, don't be shy, come up and, uh, and, and say hi to us. So we're definitely going to have another pandemic and it's a matter of what do we do? How do we educate everybody? And, and really, I think the only way that I would probably be really concerned about a pandemic would be is if I personally saw people dying in the streets like they were showing videos uh, from China or if blood from your eyes or ears or something to that effect, something that is totally noticeable, that's when we would be concerned. But we've, we've been shied uh, about what's happened this particular pandemic, and I think that has made us wiser and and we really should be questioning what's going on so that was uh number one is uh we know that we're going to be doing another uh seeing another pandemic the other thing that i wanted to show is right at the end dr mccullough basically came up with uh a, a few points to talk about and one of them in particular was a group of how to handle uh being a conspiracy theorist or anti-vaxxer and disinformation so if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody, uh, you can definitely go to this uh, this website. It's americaloud.news. Uh, it's also a link on uh, Dr. McCullough's uh, Twitter. And basically it says, uh, if you are smeared as a conspiracy theorist, nod and say you're a rational theorist. And we all have theories, but they are rational and can be discussed. I thought that was great. Another one is if you are accused of being an anti-vaxxer, wink and say you're vaccine risk aware, as we all should be with the ever-increasing number and complexity of vaccines actively injected. I myself am not an anti-vaxxer. I've never said that uh, I am. I'm an anti-experimental jabber uh, uh, that I would question, question that. I've had my vaccines when I was a kid. Uh, didn't really have any issues as far as I know. And, um, and, and likewise, I've, I've had uh, Hep A, Hep B, I've had um, uh, meningitis, I've had uh, vaccines, uh, as well as uh, my, sh my Shingrex as well, too. So, you know, we'll see how well all that works. But uh, with the information that was given to me at the time, uh, I was pretty fine with, uh, with taking those, um, those vaccines. So, and even Dr. McCullough actually said in the presentation that he has had 69 vaccinations over his life. So he is not an anti-vaxxer. He said pretty much exactly what I just uh, reiterated, that um, he is more anti-jab or anti-experimental vaccine. So having said that, the last one is if you are charged with spreading misinformation and disinformation, which it's funny, when I was tagging Dr. McCullough, in a few things, that's exactly what would come up. It would, it would immediately say, are you sure you want to tag them? There's a lot of misinformation. 
blah, 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 blah. And yet I was still able to tag him. So question that. But if you are charged with spreading misinformation or disinformation, respond by saying these words don't even exist in clinical medicine. They're simply scientific data and observations and many interpretive points of view. And as Dr. McCullough said last night, this is more about propaganda and the, the, the term misinformation and disinformation came out and, and really to kind of smear anything that was done social media, anything that uh, is being debunked in, uh, in uh, newspapers to basically say, look, if you're going against the science, then you must be spreading misinformation. And yet, you know, we're now, of course, finding out that a lot of this stuff uh, is not misinformation. It is a counter uh, against the science that's actually being shown. And uh, there's a lot of that stuff going on. So, but I did want to show you one quick video here as well. And uh, this is uh, Dr. McCullough talking. And, uh, well, I'll just let him uh, take it over here. Right, because we don't have enough time for large randomized trials. That in the setting of an emergency, it's a time for physician judgment. It's about the art of medicine, not so much the science, because the science is going to take many years. It's about judgment. It's about the intellectual courage to take a step. And I'll never forget holding up my protocol, and I looked right at the U.S. Senate, I looked right at the camera, and I said, I'm not asking for permission to do this. Yes. I'm asking for your help. Yes. This is important. This is going to happen again. This will happen again. We are told this is going to happen again. And we cannot retreat in fear and let our vulnerable people be slaughtered by the next uh, pandemic illness. It cannot happen on our watch. Yes. So there you go. Just exactly what we were just talking about. We cannot happen on our watch and it will happen again. So there are certain things that we should do uh, and certain things we should do. I should also thank Wendy for uh, giving me that ticket last night. And it was great to be able to sit with her and have good conversations as well, too. So now I want to present two videos to you. The first one is with uh, Dr. McCullough and Dr. Uh, Sanaf. And uh, this was done way, way back when, if you can remember this, January 17th, 2022. So if that date doesn't ring a bell to you, that is a week before the Canadian convoy started. A week before, right? So uh, Matt, put yourself in that, that mindset of where we were. Um, things were open up for people that were vaccinated. Any, anybody else wasn't weren't able to go out uh, without getting tested. And, and even with that, you couldn't even go to some places um, at all. So very timely to have that uh, discussion with Dr. McCullough and Dr. Sanaf. And then the second video takes place in November, uh, in November 14th of 2022. So roughly 11 months later. And the discussion is still based upon uh, certain protocols, uh, what they should have done, shoulda, woulda, coulda, and and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and and he doesn't allude to it, I don't think, in that video. But I did want to at least point out that they did talk about the wellness company last night. Uh, and again, that's uh, TWCCanada.health. Um, I'll see if I can put that up. 
And um, what a what a great website uh, of telling you what to do with certain uh, certain drugs and uh, certain protocols. And it just so happens that last night, Dr. Hodkinson was there. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, William Mackis was there. Uh, there were there were actually quite a few doctors that were there, and these people are on uh, on and affiliated with the wellness company. So, so the first video is about an hour and fifteen minutes long, and the second video is about an hour long. So, again. This is not live, so if you don't feel like watching it, you can always watch it after, come back and uh, and, and view it later, uh, or you can you can definitely join the conversation. I'm sure there'll be lots of comments uh, coming up. Although Chris and I won't be able to take a look at the comments right away, we will attempt to get back to them after. So, with that, I'm going to say, uh, please enjoy the videos and thank you so much for watching. You guys are absolutely amazing to give us this platform and to basically have a place to share this information. And uh, with that, um, here's the first video. This again is January 7th, January 17th, 2022. Buddy, it's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir, Alberta. Uh, I am also the chairman of the board of an organization called WS Full Steam Ahead. Um, if any of you, if anybody out there doesn't know, WS Full Steam Ahead was uh, was was born uh, out of out of necessity. So what we've seen in the past two years is an obvious, uh, erroneous path that our government has taken and and forced on us, and they just don't seem to be giving up. During that adventure, I was thrown in jail, uh, charged with contempt of court, and the judge looked at me and he said, Mr. Scott, you need to start following the science. So that's what I've been doing. I've been following the science. And uh, what, what I found is that it seems like a lot of people have forgotten what we learned in elementary school about science. Uh, science isn't necessarily an answer. It's all about a question. It's about asking a question and then uh, trying to disprove it. And whenever anyone's doing that these days, it seems like those in charge, those in authority just jump on them and they attack them relentlessly. The media cancels them, um, social media cancels them. And we're left wondering if we're asked to follow science, why is it that we are not listening to scientists who have concerns or questions about issues of the day? So what we did tonight is we reached out to Dr. Peter McCullough and I'm sure most of you know who Dr. Peter McCullough is, uh, and Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Uh, Dr. Seneff has recently been featured on Fox News um, over an op-ed she did that outlined some potential hazards due to the COVID vaccine um, and, and neurological issues. So I watched that stuff, and while it's a little bit out of my scope, I, I, I understand what she's saying to the point where um, I'm willing to say, hey, maybe we should start following the science we should start paying attention to science and ask these questions and get proper answers before we hurt anybody so um i guess i will bring on dr mccullough and dr seneff i'm gonna let them introduce themselves because their credentials are it's a pretty long list 
Well, good evening, Dr. Seneff and Dr. McCullough. Thank you very much for joining us on my little home-built show today. So great. So glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Awesome. Um, Dr. Seneff, I believe you are uh, linking in from Hawaii, correct? I am, yes. Lucky and me. <laughs> it's beautiful nice. here. And Dr. McCullough, you're in Dallas? That's right. Okay, so our times are, are a little bit different, not too much, though. Um, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Seneff. Uh, would you mind just uh, letting the viewers know who you are, uh, your credentials, and, and why you've chosen to speak out in regards to the COVID-19 vaccine? Okay, uh, I'm a senior research scientist at MIT in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I have uh, several degrees from MIT. My entire education is at MIT with a bachelor's in biology, master's EE and PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. Uh, I've been very interested in autism and I've spent a lot of much uh, of the last 15 years studying autism to figure out what's causing the epidemic in America. I think there's great concern for autism. I uh, landed on glyphosate, the active ingredient in the um, herbicide Roundup uh, in 2012. I think it's a major player in the autism epidemic and the result of my efforts, uh, deep research into glyphosate resulted in this book, Toxic Legacy, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. So I fully believe glyphosate is a serious problem with our health. I think it explains why we have an epidemic and many diseases in this country, chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and um, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, all these problems that we're seeing, I think are connected to chronic exposure to glyphosate in the food. And those are also conditions that are precursors, they're predictors of bad outcomes with COVID. I think it's all connected. I think the countries that are exposed to a lot of glyphosate are the same countries overall, more or less, the same countries that are struggling to get control of COVID. Places where glyphosate is used less have a much better chance of seeing COVID as a mild disease. And so the vaccines, I mean, as soon as those vaccines became, I became aware they were working on them with the, um, the rush to get them to market and to skip all the steps and because we're in an emergency and we, we have to have something to fight it. Um, I was immediately very suspicious and very worried. And I didn't know much, uh, really anything about the messenger RNA technology until um, until I discovered this was what was going on. So this was really before the vaccines were even released. I started looking into the messenger RNA technology and what I saw did not impress me at all. It made me very worried about potential uh, adverse outcomes from the vaccines. And so, um, so I've just been really switched over to these vaccines since uh, 2000, since they were first, before they were even introduced a year ago. I've really focused my studies on these vaccines. Uh, and the more I look, the more worried I get. So something I just want to point out really quickly, um, when it comes to speaking out against products that are approved and uh, our authorities tell us that they're safe for us, I really appreciate that people like you take the time to look at it further and ask these questions because I'm only 42 years old, but I, I kind of paid attention to history a little bit in, in school. And I realized that there have been times in history where our authorities and our regulatory agencies have told us that things are safe uh, and that we can use them and just don't question it because that's we, we're scientists. We know what we're doing. Um, some good examples are uh, DDT. Uh, thalidomide was a big one. Yes. Um, another one that people don't realize was um, radium face cream to make you glow. Now, now these are all things that uh, the authority and the regulatory bodies told us 
don't worry about it, it's fine. You know, they drove down the street spraying DDT on families to prove how safe it was. And then only after a few years where brave men and women were willing to stand up and ask the questions, did anything change and lives uh, were started, uh, started saving lives. So, you know, thank you. Thank you very much for, for bothering to be a scientist and ask those questions, even though it's not always easy. Right. So in your op-ed that you recently put out, um, linking potentially the COVID-19 uh, vaccines to neurological diseases, do you mind speaking on that a little bit and uh, try and in as much in layman's terms as you can, I know yes. I, when I listen to you speak, I just, uh, the, your, the depth of, of knowledge and understanding that you have on the subject is pretty, it's pretty vast. And all of us, well, most of us don't have that. So if you mind, right. if you, if you don't mind speaking on that, uh, just in, in plain English, as best you can for us. I'll try. I know that's always the hard challenge, isn't it? But let me try. I want to just say, first of all, that if you think about it, the vaccine is an injection in the arm muscle. That is already past the mucosal barriers and past the blood barriers. You're injecting something, a poison, beyond those barriers that would usually face a virus first. So you've missed those opportunities to clear this vaccine by virtue of it skipping those stages. So it's already kind of at a high, it's already at a stage of, a, of an infection beyond even the blood of a severe infection of COVID. And it actually, the body responds as if it's a severe COVID infection. And so this is what um, concerns me because it's the severe infections, of course, that are, those are the ones that raise the alarm bells in the immune cells to get them to produce tremendous levels of antibodies. So there's no question they work in the sense of making antibodies, they work, but that doesn't mean they work as a protect, you know, for protection against the virus because, and I predicted this and I wrote a paper with Dr. Greg Nye, a long paper, which was published in May and uh, on these vaccines. And uh, we predicted in that paper that we were gonna start to see variants showing up much more rapidly than they had before because of the pressure of the vaccine itself. The vaccine exposes the virus to all these antibodies, which allows the virus then to mutate into such a way as to avoid those antibodies. So you can predict that it's gonna cause rapid evolution of the virus and the virus is then gonna be resistant to the vaccine. So you, you get the antibodies, a very good antibody response and over a very short window after your second vaccine and after a couple of weeks, you get those antibodies in there. You're, you're pretty well protected, I think, from infection with the original strain, but that's not even true anymore now with Omicron. Omicron has really figured out how to resist the antibodies that the vaccine is producing. So now we're getting shots with our boosters. We're getting shots that are, are forcing us to produce antibodies to an obsolete, obsolete protein. It's an obsolete version of the spike protein. So it's really very ridiculous to get those shots. And Israel is now coming out with the fourth booster. And, they're, and they're, there's reports out of Israel saying it's not working against Omicron. So we're going to be in a constant treadmill of booster shot after booster shot um, with a wrong model that's useless against the strain that's now out there. Uh, and then we're risking all the damage that these vaccines are causing. And I believe they're causing increasing damage with every shot. They're, they're really disturbing the immune function in a severe way. This is what we're seeing in research coming out of China, out of India, amazing papers that we've been reading. And, and we're working on a long paper right now that talks about this research. Very, very clear to me that these vaccines are messing up basic immune uh, response. The innate immunity is being messed up by these vaccines in such a way that you're actually less re resistant to all kinds of other infections including things like herpes and shingles, people have Bell's palsy, 
uh, people are getting uh, infections in the liver. I mean, there's various um, infective agents that are now more likely to come alive because of the da damage to the innate immune system by the vaccines. And this also includes cancer because cancer, the innate immunity is what protects you from cancer. And I am hearing lots of reports from my friends who are um, naturopaths of, of, uh, of um, reappearance of cancer among patients that had had it in control before, after the vaccine. Now, the one I'm most worried about is neuro, neurodegenerative disease. And, and I have done a lot of studying in that area, neurodegenerative disease co consequent to the vaccines. And I think I understand the process and it's very, very scary. So it's been shown, again, I have lots and lots of papers behind what I'm saying here, but there are studies that show that the vaccine, it goes into the arm, the immune cells respond to the muscle cells that are being injured because they're producing lots of spike protein. They can't stop themselves from doing that. That's what the vaccine does. It allows the cells to, it forces the cells to make spike protein against their will. And the muscle cells start screaming, you know, we've got a big problem here. The immune cells come in, they take up the vaccine as well, because these are lipid particles. They look like LDL particles. The, the cells don't know better. They take up these particles and now the immune cells are loaded up and they start making lots of spike protein. That is extremely abnormal. In fact, these immune cells, the dendritic cells, the B cells, the T cells, they don't have the ACE2 receptor. So normally they don't take up the virus. It's other cells that take it up. So these guys who are supposed to be fighting the virus suddenly are seeing all this spike protein that they can't stop making. And then they're just like completely panicked. I mean, I think the immune, I think of them as little, you know, uh, beings, but they, they, they have all these complex responses that they do to things. But what ends up happening is they rush into the lymph system to, to inform the, the B cells and the T cells that we've got to do something with this poison that we're making, we can't stop making. And they end up concentrated in the spleen, the spleen, the liver, the ovaries. This is what's seen in studies where they traced, where does the vaccine go? These immune cells are going into the spleen and the spleen is the center. One moment um, before I forget. So this is a, a great time to introduce Dr. McCullough uh, because I remember early on reading and uh, listening to Dr. McCullough speaking out on the hazards of the plan the government had, as in just this vaccine crusade and vaccinate everybody. And I remember hearing many doctors, including Dr. McCullough, speak up and say, hey, you know, this might not be the best idea because of this. And you just said, it, it, uh, some of the, th the things that I remember Dr. McCullough speak, uh, speaking on. So if you don't mind, just hold that thought um, yeah. and, and let, let us digest what you've just said. Dr. McCullough, uh, thank you as well for joining us. And do you mind just quickly introducing yourself and letting us know who you are and what you're doing? And then while um, uh, Dr. Senef is, is continuing um, with her thing, uh, we'll just get your thoughts and opinions on that as well. Thanks, Chris. I was just like part of the audience. I, I felt like I was in uh, graduate school at MIT. <clears throat> that was fantastic, <laughs> Dr. Sarah Pazana Rall. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist cardiologist, and I'm also trained in epidemiology. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. So today was a, a hospital day for me. I spent about half my time in clinical practice and half my time as an author and editor uh, and a clinical investigator. I, uh, I, I've been focusing my whole career actually on inter interactions between the, the cardiovascular system and the kidneys. And that's been my major research focus prior to COVID-19. Um, and I'm the president of the Cardiorenal Society of America, the inaugural editor of the textbook Cardiorenal Medicine. And, and I'm the editor-in-chief of reviews in cardiovascular medicine. I have my uh, bachelor's degree from Baylor here in Texas and then medical school at University of Texas Southwestern. I went on uh, to do my medicine training at the University of Washington in Seattle. 
after three years of service, I did uh, I, my graduate studies at University of Michigan. And then from there, had leadership positions in Southeast Michigan. And, and then I wanted to finish my, my career where I started down in Texas, uh, down here in Dallas, Texas, uh, focused on heart and kidney disease until COVID-19 hit. And so uh, when this hit, I dropped everything uh, to focus my scholarship on the pandemic. And much like Dr. Asanov, <coughs> I've picked up on you know, some key areas initially on early treatment. And then in the second half of the pandemic, on vaccine and safety and efficacy. And I did, uh, and I, I just like Dr. Senoff, I do believe in the power of publication. I have uh, over 660 peer reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine, 52 on COVID-19. And, uh, and and I have also, you know, periodicals. I've published a whole series of op-eds in the Hill last year. Uh, and one of the ones in August I published, Chris, it says the great gamble of the COVID-19 vaccine program. And I outlined the reasons I thought it was a gamble in part uh, because of the lipid nanoparticles, uh, the genetic technology platform, where these particles were going to go, what was going to happen when the spike protein was produced. Maybe we have Dr. Sanoff pick it up from here because uh, right now the immune cells unprepared were racing to the spleen and it was getting pretty exciting. Before we continue, Dr. Sanoff, so the, um, the lipid nanotechnology, I believe, was developed in the University of British Columbia right here in Canada. As far as I know, um, one thing that that's caught my attention is that in Canada, usually when a Canadian does something great, we shout it from the rooftops. Like, look at the. Do you remember the Canada arm on the on the on the spacecraft, the space station? That was news, and we were so proud of that. We talked about it all the time. But now we have um, arguably the key component in these new vaccines that were supposed to save the world, and it was developed right here in Canada at UBC. And we haven't heard anything about it. So I'm wondering if uh, if maybe they're not as proud of it as they should be, or if there's a reason why, but <laughs> anyway, I just thought I would throw that out there. That's that's interesting, yeah. I mean, the technology, they've been working on this message RNA technology for decades. There's actually papers from the 1990s about this, and then they've been working out all the details for how to manipulate the message RNA to make it um, jump through all the hoops that it needs to jump through in order to get people to make lots of antibodies. And what that means is they have disturbed it greatly. I mean, this is one of the things that really concerns me. Uh, the messenger RNA in the vaccine is it codes for the same protein, the spike protein that the virus produces with a little twist. It has a little uh, change that makes the protein less likely to go into the membrane, which causes it to stick on the ACE2 receptor and disable it, which is how you get things like myocarditis, I believe. But that's a whole other story. We still haven't gotten to the neurodegeneration yet. But um, they have changed the messenger RNA in big ways to make it extremely not natural, to make it look like human messenger RNA. So it completely, when the cell picks it up, normally if they pick up viral RNA, the cells know it's coming from a virus and they initiate an immediate response that helps to get the whole immune response going. But they got, it's stealth, they got fooled because it, it looks like human RNA and it's been engineered to be extremely efficient at pouring out spike protein at a high rate and also to resist breakdown. They've done all these changes and you can read about the details of all those changes that they've done to the messenger RNA to make it work so well. And then they've also put in, in this cationic lipid, which is a, a synthetic lipid, very toxic, lots unknown about the cationic lipid, but that does cause the um, mRNA to be much more efficient at, at opening up and making the protein. They've really carefully crafted it to perfect it as a weapon 
to make the immune cells get right away to start making tons and tons of antibodies to it, because that's kind of the only option they have. They said their goal their is goal to do that, is and they succeeded. But that doesn't mean they've succeeded in making a product that's useful because of all these other issues that come about by virtue of having that situation in the immune cells. They are very, very stressed. They go to the spring. They're extremely stressed. They're, they're crying out to the T cells and B cells, make some antibodies to this stuff. We've got to get rid of it. They're making lots and lots of it, and they have nowhere to put it. So they end up packaging it up inside something, little lipid particles, which are called exosomes, and releasing them into, in, out into the external space. So I picture these immune cells congregating in the spleen, um, releasing, making a uh, spike protein like there's no tomorrow, unable to turn it off, and spilling it out uh, into the medium as these little exosomes. And those exosomes are extremely dangerous because they travel along the vagus nerve up to the brain, over to the heart, over to the liver. They're basically moving up the vagus nerve to these major organs of the body. And when they land, they induce an inflammatory response where they land, which is gonna cause injury to the cells. And that's how you get the inflammatory heart problems. You get the inflammatory brain problems, which end up with all kinds of neurological issues. And it's particularly focused on the nerve fibers. I believe that's true. And I've, I've, I see that from looking at the VARES database because the VARES reports are very, very interesting. And I've been looking through them, looking for counts on various you know, conditions. And what you can find is a lot of evidence of inflammation on various nerves that are in the head. Things like um, the uh, tinnitus, uh, ringing in the ear, which is infl inflammation in the auditory nerve. Uh, people are having difficulty swallowing. They're getting all kinds of reactions to vagus nerve inflammation, like nausea and dizziness. And, um, and then they're getting um, Bell's palsy, which is the facial nerve, and mm -hmm. migraine headaches, which is the um, trigeminal nerve. All of these nerves in the head, and there's issues with the optic nerve, the eyes. All those nerves are getting inflamed, I believe, with exosomes that are traveling up the vagus nerve, pouring into the brain. Uh, as a consequence of these immune cells in the spleen, unable to know what to do with all this pro all this nasty protein that they're making. Spike is a very toxic protein. It's been shown to have prion-like characteristics. And that's where what makes me worry so much about Parkinson's disease, because I've read a lot about Parkinson's. My mother died of it before she was my age, so I know it well. I've always been interested in Parkinson's disease. And I, I know that they have understood. In fact, they've understood that if you cut the, the people who have had their vagus, vagus nerve severed, are very protected against Parkinson's disease. So they know that it's coming from something that's traveling on the vagus nerve. And they know that you can have an infection with a, a microbe in your gut, a pathogen, that releases a prion-like protein. And that prion-like protein gets taken up by immune cells, carried into the spleen. And in the spleen, it activates a, a response that ends up upregulating alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein is the misfolded protein linked to Parkinson's disease. And it actually fights uh, viruses. Alpha-synuclein is an antimicrobial protein. So the spleen has put, starts making alpha-synuclein. And then the, the prion-like protein that's uh, there causes the alpha-synuclein to misfold. And all of that gets packaged up into exosomes and shipped to the brain. And that and it ends up in the substantia nigra, where you get then injury to substantia nigra that causes Parkinson's disease. This is all worked out with Parkinson's disease. And it is exactly what we're seeing here with these vaccines. And I'll tell you, when I mentioned that, when I gave that short clip at, on Fox News, I got tons and tons of email from people telling me their, their sob stories. And some of them are really shocking. Like the person was diagnosed with Parkinson's shortly after they got their second jab. And within the year, um, 
they were so bad off they died. That's extremely rapid development of Parkinson's disease. Um, usually it takes 14 years between diagnosis and death. So that is really, really disturbing to me. Yeah, and we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of things that we've never seen before. So Dr. McCullough, um, it was actually your social media where I discovered Dr. Sanef's op-ed. So um, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that you are in agreement with, the, with the, uh, the science and the theories that she's presenting and the potential for these dangers. And, and I would say that, that they were known ahead of time <clears throat> uh, in a paper uh, from, uh, <coughs> from China in 2018, for instance, it was a wonderful uh, figure of, of where the lipid nanoparticles go in the human body. And uh, we know now from human autopsy studies of individuals who've died after vaccination that uh, we certainly can find spike protein, just as Dr. Senoff says, uh, widely throughout the body. Uh, including the brain, uh, the heart, uh, bone marrow, other vital organs. Uh, papers by Jun Zhang and myself from our lab uh, demonstrated that the spike protein clearly can damage endothelial cells that line the blood vessels and cause blood clotting. And I've been struck now with the, the density of literature. There are over a thousand peer-reviewed publications now of vaccine injuries, most of them mechanistic studies of how do these vaccine injuries happen? Uh, in the US CDC VAERS system, there's over a million vaccine injury reports that have been certified by the CDC. Sadly, uh, over 21,000 of them uh, resulted in death, over 350,000 resulted in hospitalization or urgent visit. And well over 30,000 now have left people permanently disabled. And, I think a lot of the neurologic syndromes, and I've seen some of them in my clinical practice, and they are wide ranging, which is interesting, very wide ranging. Um, I imagine some of those syndromes, uh, in fact, end up as permanent disabilities. <clears throat> the permanent disabilities that I've reported include both central nervous system injury syndromes, but also peripheral nervous system. So for instance, I have a young woman who's a mother trying to take care of her family. She's a professional. Uh, she took uh, uh, the, the, uh, one of the messenger RNA vaccines, and now she has a permanent radial nerve palsy that emanates from the deltoid muscle down to the arm. Her arm doesn't work the same anymore, and I was, I was forced to fill out a permanent disability form. And I wonder if that case, if it's just tremendous local production of spike protein, and again, this endosomal uh, method of transport, this kind of neuronal transport, at some point in time, the spike protein has to get uh, uh, very proximal to nerves and Schwann cells and to axons and start causing damage. And I imagine Dr. Sanoff could take it from here. Right. Well, well I think that's what's going wanna, on is with those exosomes. I'd like to ask one question first here. So we've seen, and especially in the VAERS database, that we do have a much increased adverse event uh, uh, response to this vaccine than we've seen before. Um, I don't think there's any question of that. So what I'm wondering is, with all these adverse events and reactions, is it not normal for the manufacturer of that drug to attribute those to the drug itself until they can prove otherwise? Or are we supposed to have to prove, um, are, are we supposed to have we're, prove we're right when we have a reaction and, it's, and we, we assume it's attributed to vaccine? Uh, Chris, I have a lot of experience in, in drug safety. I've chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards and FDA and the NIH on this. 
So this whole issue of, of a vaccine <coughs> and causality needs a needs a little bit of passion. As a general principle, the drug, anything that 30 days after the administration of counts. I mean, it doesn't matter if we think it's directly causal or not. It counts in every single safety assessment. And, and in fact, it counts on a drug label. Uh, so there's a lot of drugs that, that say, you know, certain side effects are simply because it happened within this 30 day window of being administered. You know, with vaccines, remember, F, uh, FDA guidance on vaccines said anything that happens within 24 months, 24 months, because it's a vaccine, it's not a like a, and then with gene transfer technology uh, platforms like these are, these are classified as genetic treatments. The, the number is five years, is five years. So Chris, it's, it's anything that happens within this time window from a regulatory perspective is of interest. And it's not a matter of doing an exercise on, on uh, you know, somebody's opinion on causality, because um, at, at this point in time, you know, we won't know until many years later after all the mechanisms are put together. All I can tell you right now is the best analyses of causality have been done on death, and which is the most serious event. And as an epidemiologist, what we do in drug safety, we, we apply what's called the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. And basically, it starts out with, is there a dangerous mechanism of action? Is it conceivable these vaccines produce a toxic substance in the body that could cause death? The answer is unequivocally yes. So we check that box. The second box is, do we have a large number? You know, have we had two deaths or have we had 20,000 deaths? The answer is we have a large number. So we, we check that box. The third analysis is, uh, uh, do we have um, uh, internal validity? <coughs> Well, when the VAERS analysis <coughs> data were analyzed by, um, by McLachlan and colleagues, and they coded, they internally coded all the reports back in April uh, by causality, two different reviewers, and they tried to come to agreement. They came up with 86% of the time, there was no other cause to explain the death outside of the vaccine. So now we check that box, internal validity. Um, th then we ask external validity. You know, is there agreement outside of VAERS? Do, is it seen elsewhere? Well, yeah, it's the exact same thing as seen in the yellow card system in the UK and seen in the uterus system in Europe. So I can tell you, as we see here today, the Bradford Hills, you know, tenets of causality have been fulfilled. There's no doubt about it. The vaccines uh, and that analysis certainly caused death. And I bet we will come very uh, in line with the same things for the neuro neurologic cardiac the immunologic and hematologic abnormalities. I, I, I don't think it's going to be uh, a, a difficult causality type of argument to uh, to come up with here. And my position is I, I really hope we don't see that. I really, really do because, you know, I think people have suffered enough. However, it's going to be very bad for those who have uh, ignored the, the red flags and bypassed safety mechanisms in order to promote this vaccination crusade, I call it. Um, if we start seeing these things uh, in, 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 an, in an ongoing basis, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have some very, very tough questions to answer. And I certainly want, wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Well, Chris, just think about the randomized trials program. <clears throat> in the randomized trials, 
the Johnson and Johnson program was paused for one neurologic event, one. So the public program is no less important than the randomized trial. The public program should have been paused for the very first neurologic event. I mean, we should so have hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of neurologic events to accrue. So what the difference is the randomized trials had data safety monitoring boards. And in the public programs, there, there is no safety mechanism. There's actually no oversight by experts who have uh, expertise in data safety and monitoring, none. It's an unmonitored program. And, and, and that's the reason why the safety events continue to accrue. So it seems to me that this, it may not be about our health. Um, for instance, my, my uh, sister-in-law, she decided to take the jab for her to keep her job as millions of other people have done. She had a pretty nasty adverse reaction, an allergic reaction. And she, we had to call the ambulance and she was in the hospital for, you know, a, a couple night, a couple nights throughout the week and still gets headaches. And it was not good. Um, she got a medical exemption, which was very difficult. Our health service authority, Alberta health services actually had to apply to get her a medical exemption with the drug manufacturer's blessing. And when she got that exemption, uh, the employer she worked for said, well, we don't recognize exemptions, either get the jab or we're going to replace you. Wow. And to me, that's not about health. Um, it's something completely different. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to share my opinions on what I think that is. It doesn't really matter. What matters right now is that people are, uh, people are sick and they need proper treatment and they need to be able to make a choice on whether they're going to accept that risk or not. That's just my personal opinion. Um, so Dr. Seneff, uh, what, what else have you got there? That was, <laughs> I got to say, that's, it's absolutely terrifying what you're saying. Um, even, even though I don't completely understand everything you're saying, I get the big picture that the, the mechanisms within the vaccine have the potential to do things within our body that aren't intended and are not in our best interest and have nothing to do with their health. Is that a good kind of sum up of it? Absolutely. And I think it's really so many diseases. I've only so far just mentioned Parkinson's, but there are many other neurological, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease and CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob, which is the human prion disease. And there's evidence in VAERS that, um, these, that, that these vaccines are, are far more there have many more cases in VAERS of these diseases and of symptoms of these diseases, like immobility for Parkinson's or difficulty swallowing, which is an early symptom of Parkinson's, or this olfactory nerve, you know, having loss of a sense of smell. That's a very early symptom of future Parkinson's disease. And there are, it is just huge. It's 36 times as many cases uh, in the VAERS database for the COVID-19 vaccines in, in the one year, less than a year since they've been on, uh, in the database. 36 times as many cases of uh, loss of a sense of smell as there are in uh, over the 31 year history of the database for all of the other vaccines put together. That is a huge signal. And that is a very um, important precursor to Parkinson's disease. And so the reason is because it's, I think, is because, it, because it's not being you know, the, the virus. It's, it's clear the virus gets into the nose and causes that. That's a very common symptom of this virus. So it's very good at messing up the olfactory nerve to cause the, this damage. 
but the vaccine is not being administered through the nose. It's coming in through the arm. So how does it get all the way up to the nose to cause those problems? I think it's through those exosomes traveling on the, on the vagus nerve and then going along the olfactory nerve and damaging uh, the, the neurons that respond to sense of smell. And so I think it's just, and I, I, I want to mention also uh, cancer. And I've been doing research with a, a wonderful collaborator, one of whom is Peter McCullough, uh, on the issue of these vaccines increasing the risk of cancer or of increased uh, development of a cancer you already have. It looks very uh, worrisome to me. And again, I looked at the various database and I looked at a whole bunch of different words that are related to cancer, like breast cancer, various kinds of cancer, and you know, um, my, all the different terms that you might find to be cancer terms. I thought of a lot of terms. I looked each one up, I tallied up the numbers for these COVID vaccines against all the other vaccines over the history of the database. So those two, it's an unfair comparison, right? All these vaccines, you think a flu vaccine every year for many, many years, and all the other vaccines that kids get over 31 years, that's this control group. And then the other one is just the COVID-19 vaccines over one year. And they went out big time. Overall, the average was uh, two times as many cases in the COVID uh, database, data, uh, data sets related to COVID, two times as many cases related to all these different can, uh, can terms connected to cancer compared to the other, all the other vaccines together over 31 years. And so we're working out the mechanism by which these vaccines would cause uh, cancer and cause whatever cancer you have already to become more virulent. So that's another big worry. I think that we're going to see 10, 20 years from now, we're going to see uh, younger and younger people getting these degenerative diseases, getting cancer, getting neurodegenerative diseases, getting heart issues. We're going to see it happening in younger and younger people and more and more frequently. And we won't necessarily connect it to these vaccines because that, you know, maybe we'll just have this period of time in which we're administering all these booster shots. And then I think we're going to shut it down. I'm hoping that's the case. I think it's going to be shut down and I hope it's going to be shut down soon because they have but, to wake up and realize that they're doing a tremendous amount of damage. Because I think it's important for our listeners to understand that the spike protein we understand actually is in the human body for many months or even over a year after each one of the, the shots. The spike protein is not easily cleared out. And I, I was... Uh, um, uh, really taken back when I read a paper from University of Pittsburgh uh, that I described the S2 segment of the spike protein having an interaction, a favorable interaction with the P53, the tumor suppressor gene, and BRCA or the BRCA gene, which is a gene uh, women know about for uh, female breast cancer and reproductive cancer. So it, it's possible that there's enough dwell time of accumulating spike protein for it to be oncogenic. And something like a P53 interaction would explain a whole variety of solid organ cancers either becoming uh, more evident or actually, you know, having tumor progression uh, in patients with established cancer. Yeah, so and breast saying, cancer, by the way, was three times as much. It was one of the cancers that stood out, three times as many reports associated with the COVID vaccines compared to all the other vaccines over the entire history of the database. So you said there are papers, published peer-reviewed papers, that show how uh, this can interfere with our body's own defenses against cancer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when <clears throat> normally products would go through what's called oncogenicity testing, preclinical testing to see if in fact tumors formed in animal models, uh, et cetera. And, and you know, a lot of this was abrogated during the operation warp speed. And a lot of people think about a vaccine, you know, the antigen being in the body for a few days. And I think what the developers never envisioned 
is the fact that the spike protein was going to be in the human body for many months, if not more than a year. Bruce Patterson has shown with the respiratory infection, the S1 segment's recoverable in human monocytes up to 15 months after the respiratory infection. And I interviewed Bruce for the McCullough Report. And he's got data now on those who received the vaccine. He said the difference is it's the S1 and the S2 segment in those who received the vaccine. And he can see it in the body for as long as he has samples in time after the injection. So it's a long lasting installation of spike protein in the human body with each and every injection of a COVID-19 vaccine. There's even the possibility of it becoming permanent because there is, and I've written about that in the paper that I wrote with Professor, with Dr. Greg Nye. Uh, we talked about the potential for the messenger RNA uh, in the vaccine to get converted to DNA and, and integrated into the genome of the human host cell. That is entirely possible given the uh, biology of, uh, of how DNA and RNA work. And that's through something called retrotrans, uh, the retrotransposons. Let's see, what is it called? Retrotranscription. Retrotranscription, retro meaning backwards, to take RNA into DNA and then to uh, and then to integrate that DNA into the human genome. So you could have individual monocytes, individual cells, immune cells that have now got the capacity to keep on making the spike protein through their the DNA that they carry in their nucleus. That's a possibility. It hasn't been proven, but there is there's theoretical support for it. But it's a question that should be asked. It definitely is. And in so fact, there's a paper out of MIT that that showed some evidence of that. Um, so paper was published what you just said, and Dr. McCullough has said, pardon me for interrupting, uh, Dr. Seneff, if you knew that the Chief Medical Officer of Health of my province in Alberta here was watching this interview, uh, what words would you have for her or, or maybe even the Minister of Health? Because I did invite them and tag them both on the, uh, on the event post for this. I hope they're listening because they need to know about this. The, the uh, evidence is being very much censored. Uh, by the media, by the governments, by of course by pharma. Pharma has too much control over the governments today, and uh, I think there's a lot of people who are involved in making money off of these vaccines. And I think they're very, very excited. The pharmaceutical industry is very excited about what they see as a great potential for the messenger RNA technology, and that's why they want desperately for this to work. And they they knew they couldn't possibly get past the whole procedure of evaluation, except if they could create an emergency to make that happen. And I think they were hoping that the public would just embrace this technology and, and not notice that it's causing all of these problems. And I don't have a problem with technology. As a matter of fact, um, I'm very impressed that they were able to even do that as fast as they did. Because while I personally, for me, I don't believe that the vaccine is the right choice. And I've listened to a lot of things that other doctors have said, including Dr. McCullough, about uh, natural immunity and what the vaccine does and which age groups it's, you know, it's, it's more relevant for. Um, but the vaccine is a very complex, almost ingenious invention. Like it is a, a technical, technological masterpiece, would you say? It, it is it, an incredible technological achievement. Yeah, we created something in a very short period of time to try and help, help people to try and fight something. But the problem is, as wonderful that as that is, um, there are questions arising about its safety. And if if our mandate here, what we hear in Alberta all the time is we have to protect the healthcare system. Um, protecting the healthcare system to me means listening to men like Dr. McCullough talking about early treatment, preventing people from having to go to the hospital, uh, holistic health approaches. Um, and now listening to what you said, if we're going to protect our healthcare system 
in the future. We better be acknowledging these questions and getting some answers before we hurt a whole bunch of people and have our healthcare system overrun with results from some terrible mistakes we've made now. That's, That's certainly what I feel. No, I agree with you. I think it's going to be the case that we're going to have a whole lot of people with a lot worse disease than they had before. Um, and they're going to regret having gotten the, the, these injections. And, and um, it's just going to be a sad, sad thing to watch in the future because people won't be able to take it back once they've had it. But I hope they'll become smart. More and more people need to wake up and realize that they have to stop getting these jabs. They're going to too much damage is going to happen in the future if they continue to get uh, a booster shot every few months, which, which is what it's looking like. And of course, they're not working anyway. Omicron is outsmarting the vaccines. So We're it becomes less and less um, clear why you would want it to begin with for the benefit. And when you see the, the risk benefit ratio shifting like that, and of course, it, the, the protection wanes very quickly, too. So people only have protect, protection for a short time. And it seems to be that uh, the boosters are waning even faster than the original possibly because the Omicron is no longer matching. I and mean, that's certainly the case. The boosters aren't even working out the door because the Omicron is no longer matching. So it becomes foolish really to get these injections every few months uh, to fight a, a virus that's becoming, as you said, a much more benign uh, uh, disease, which is wonderful news. I think Omicron is a fantastic natural uh, vaccine in a sense, because it's causing massive uh, infections with people throughout the population. And everybody who gets Omicron now has protection against future disease, much better natural protection, which lasts a lot longer and is a lot more uh, sturdy in terms of it's, it's not just the spike protein, it's the whole virus. And it's not just the antibodies, it's the whole immune system. So it's a much, much better response to protect you from future exposure once you catch the disease. We should all be trying to get Omicron right now. I think we should feel very fortunate if we've managed to avoid the virus so far, like I have. And now if it's a mild disease, get that disease in a sense, in a sense get a natural vaccine. I think that's what we should do, be doing. And of course, I think we should all be eating healthy food, certified organic food, whole foods, stay away from the processed foods, get out in the sunlight, get your vitamin D, you know, exercise, stay healthy. We, that should be the mandate that the government should be screaming at us. You guys have got to get healthy. You've got to do healthy eating, healthy living um, to, to keep your immune system strong because that's the real way to protect yourself from the disease. Absolutely. So we just crept up over the uh, over the hour. So the witching hour. <laughs> the big yeah, witching you, hour. I'm, so sorry. I, I'm, I'm assuming you've got a, a dinner to attend to. Uh, yes, I do. So I think I'd better go or else my guests will. Uh... <laughs> OK, well, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us. I mean, the, the people of Alberta and really where people see this all over Canada, we really, really appreciate um, the, the fact that you bother to go out of your way to speak up against things that could potentially harm us. Um, we're missing the other side of the story in almost every conversation that we see out of, out of the mainstream media right now. And it means a lot to me and millions of other people uh, to hear women like you, as intelligent as you, speak up on our behalf, even though you probably don't have to. I mean, you could probably be completely comfortable going along with the status quo, but you choose to push back because it's the right thing to do. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. Anytime, hopefully again, sometime in the, in the future soon. And I'd be delighted re with any luck, maybe I'll get to come to Hawaii and do this there. <laughs> I think the <laughs> that would be pleasant, nice wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be great. Hope to see okay. you there.
Bye well, thanks bye. again and have a great night. And uh, we're going to continue on with Dr. McCullough uh, until the conversation feels appropriate to end. So good night, uh, Dr. Seneff, and thank you again. Thank you. Wow. Uh, every once in a while, we have the opportunity to hear from people and sometimes the conversations are absolutely terrifying, like the potential for harm, um, the potential to look back in 10 years and say, I can't believe we did that is there's a big potential there. Chris, there's no doubt about it. That's the reason why I felt so motivated to write, you know, to America in the Hill in August of 2020, before the vaccines ever came out that, listen, this is not looking like a good idea. Uh, th this is not a good idea to code for the dangerous spike protein. Once we realized all the danger in SARS-CoV-2 is actually loaded in the spike protein, now we're gonna create the genetic code for the spike protein. And then uh, in a sense, you know, uh, commandeer our own cells to produce a potentially lethal protein against ourselves in the body. It seemed like a, a terrible idea. And then to load it on lipid nanoparticles, which distribute everywhere. And so we knew ahead of time, this, these were gonna go to the brain, that we we're gonna go to the ovaries, the adrenal glands, the heart. And so this idea of you know having a vaccine go to all these vital organs in the heart, we, you know, we don't plan on that with tetanus toxoid or the hepatitis B vaccine or meningococcal vaccine. <coughs> This idea of seeding the body's organs with the genetic code to produce a dangerous protein. Uh, I mean, I'm telling you, before the vaccines ever came out, it sounded like it was a very, very bad idea. And it obviously uh, has turned out to be a catastrophe with the number of people who died, the number of people are injured. And now what Dr. Seneff uh, is outlining is, is, is maybe the real danger, and that is the emergence of all these chronic diseases, particularly neurologic diseases. And it may not happen just with shot one or shot two, but once we get to boosters and keep depositing more and more spike protein, loading the system with spike protein that we can't get out of the body. You take it on, but you can't get rid of it. And it itself directly causes disease. I guess I should get this out of the way right away. Um, I don't believe that you are, and I'm not, an anti-vaxxer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I've heard you speak on this before, like you've been asked this question on uh, America Out Loud, which, by the way, that's a great show. Uh, I listen to it while I'm driving all over Alberta now. Um, so, in your opinion, would it have been appropriate to roll out a vaccine for people that wanted it in groups that were at really high risk for you know, higher risk for, you know, the alpha, beta or delta variants of COVID, um, but not push it on everybody. Would Do, do you think it would have been appropriate to, to do that? Well, I, I don't think the genetic vaccines should have ever moved forward. I thought <clears throat> it was too dangerous of an idea to take a pathogenic protein and devise a genetic code for it. So Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and AstraZeneca, they never should have gotten out of the gate. They should have been dismissed. Now, the antigen-based vaccines, I think, should have been fronted. Uh, and that includes Novavax. Uh, Novavax turns out that, that its uh, uh, results of vaccine efficacy against the extinct variants was every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna. It's possible that Novavax could have played a role. And you can think about that like a tetanus shot. It's a fixed amount of spike protein, five micrograms, that the body can probably form an immune system with, but you, you know, probably not going to be overwhelmed with five micrograms. 
uh, and, uh, and the body has a much better chance of localizing it. So I think the genetic, I think the, the antigen-based vaccines should have dominant, a predominant role, but only should have been applied to nurses, <coughs> maybe high-risk seniors and nursing home workers. I estimate that maybe two Americans should have gotten a vaccine only. Why? Why? Because that's really the group where hospitals were at sufficiently high risk to warrant an experimental vaccine. We would never want to mass vaccinate the population and then promote hyperdominant mutants like we did with the Delta strain. We actually, you know, we with mass we created the Delta outbreak, which prolonged the pandemic and harder because Delta was so hard to treat. And now it's clear that contamination has basically spurred the Omicron outbreak, uh, a very high peak. We have double the cases of COVID at the highest point ever in the past. It's a very narrow peak. Fortunately, it's much milder. Now Omicron is like the common cold. And, and I can't imagine uh, that anybody would ever take a high-risk vaccine to prevent the common cold. It just, Linus Pauling said, don't do it. I wouldn't do it. And you're right, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've taken all the conventional vaccines and follow the vaccine schedules. I accept vaccines in my clinical practice. It's just that the genetic vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, were a bad idea to start out with. It's like a bad science experiment. And now people are being uh, basically being damaged greatly. They're being injured, acutely injured, like your sister, people getting permanent disability, and sadly, tens of thousands of people dying as a result of this bad science experiment. I remember you saying early on, um, you were promoting protecting the most vulnerable, encouraging people's health and early treatment. And I know hindsight is 2020, um, but I did hear you mention something about this on uh, one of your podcasts. If we had taken that path instead of putting all of our eggs in a uh, mRNA vaccine, where do you see us? Where would you see us being now? Well, now I'd, I'd upgrade it. You know, I, I had the two points of testimony. I think you saw in the, in the Rogan podcast. I'd upgrade it now to 95% of all the lives could have been spared with proper use of monoclonal antibodies and the oral drugs in sequence combination. The use of the, the nasal virucidal therapy is so effective now. We use povidone iodine and dilute hydrogen peroxide. Any Canadian can do that now. Uh, you know, we're not relying on ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine hardly at all now in Omicron. It's all intranasal therapy. It works great. Uh, and so you know, it, it, part of this is a learning curve. You can't blame everybody. It's the fact that we learned as things went along how to manage the virus. Um, but I think if, if it was orchestrated, uh, you know, if I was leading the team in the U.S., I think uh, I could have put up on the board. I could have saved 95 percent of people who were lost. Wow. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on your uh, on your iodine nasal wash treatment that you just mentioned? There's a lot of people that have been asking that question. And uh, I've been directing them to your, actually directing them to your podcast because it's very, it's very well laid out. But if you don't mind just speaking on that for a moment, that'd be great. Sure. Anybody wants to learn, go to America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report and then uh, search on McCullough and you'll see there's, I did a couple on of them uh, about using <coughs> the uh, nasal washes. So uh, the lead nasal wash is povidone iodine, which is the brown betadine solution that doctors use in the ER to sterilize wounds. That's used for external use, by the way. It's also used in, in ophthalmic, uh, uh, you know, eye drops, uh, ophthalmo, uh, ophthalmological applications for eye drops. 
And so it can be used in the nose and the mouth, provided you don't swallow it, and provided it's dilute. So we take a 10% povidone iodine solution, which is a standard bottle of betadine. It's about $5 on Amazon, huge bottle. And uh, just take half a teaspoon, Chris, in a shot glass of water, which is 1.5 ounces. And uh, just take a little a little bulb syringe or just a, a little pumper spray bottle. You can get, you can get those on Amazon too for uh, about $2. And uh, over the sink, kind of start pumping it up in the nose until you feel the liquid there. And then go ahead and sniff it back to the very back of the throat and spit it out. And you kind of have to choke on it a little bit in order to really get that soft palate. And then do it on the other side and then repeat it. So do it on, on both sides. And then the rest of the shot glass, go ahead and gargle with it for 30 seconds and spit it out. That's a very effective approach. That's called virucidal oral and nasal rinses. Uh, uh, we do it twice a day for prevention. If you're out seeing a lot of people on sales calls and you want to prevent COVID. And during active treatment, we crank it up to every four hours while awake. And there are now 12 clinical studies showing this dramatically reduces the intensity and severity of COVID-19 dramatically reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. 12 clinical studies show this, Chris. And if someone can't tolerate iodine, every so often, I had an iodine allergic patient the other day, and it's, it's not a serious allergy, but I could tell she, she wasn't tolerating it. We can use uh, hydrogen peroxide. Now the dilution there is one to three. So that'd be three quarters of a teaspoon. Again, a shot glass of the water, 1.5 ounces, and the same technique of squirting it up in the nose. Uh, sometimes, uh, the solutions sting a little bit, almost feels like you have pool water in your nose. So you may want to put just a pinch of salt in the solution. That's what I do. You make it more physiologic like saline. I have to tell you, this has been the single greatest advance. Omicron replicates in the nose 70 times that of Delta. It, it, and Omicron doesn't invade the body. So the source of the fever is in the nose. The source of the, the symptoms, a headache is in the nose. And we need to zap the virus in the nose. When I was fielding some text messages during the call, I was actually just sending them that little handout where I showed my setup on my countertop, where I show the povidone iodine. I bought the generic one myself, Chris, on Amazon for five bucks, and then either a bulb syringe or a spray bottle. I bought the spray bottle for two bucks and, and use that as the main COVID defense. I think every Canadian ought to have povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide in the house. Don't wait until you get COVID. Have it in the house and start immediately. Uh, it turns out that dentists and uh, ENT doctors have been doing this for sinusitis anyway. This works on the common cold anyway. This works on uh, Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus infections anyway. So th this is common treatment. We're just now applying it in COVID-19. So if there are safe and effective treatments that don't require hospitalization, um, that's a bonus because we protect the healthcare system. And I've found that it's our job now to protect the system that's supposed to protect us, but that's another story. Uh, as with that said, and and how you're you're talking about what Omicron looks like in a like in a clinical setting with patients you're seeing, it doesn't sound that scary. Should we be scared of of, of Omicron? I don't think we should. Omicron is uh, we have data now. I certainly have my professional opinion, which is basically like a common cold. I haven't anywhere anywhere near. Delta, and I've even managed somebody up to age 98. I can tell you right now, <coughs> I don't think Omicron is uh, <coughs> is a risk. Uh, but even if it was a severe case, it's easily managed. Uh, we have data from uh, 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 Abdullah and colleagues from South Africa showing even even the cases, the stray cases that got hospitalized with 
Omicron in South Africa, the, the inpatient mortality rate was 1%, and they don't do any early treatment. So if we do any early treatment at home, I guarantee the overall mortality rate far less than 1% for Omicron. I don't think we need to worry about hospitalizations uh, or deaths. I was just looking at the US hospitalization data, which, which are estimates from the CDC, and it looked like in children, there was a little bit of a panic uh, the children were being uh, hospitalized, but but nobody was seriously ill and no curves are just falling off right now, right, right now as well. So I, I think Omicron, I agree with Dr. Sanoff, it's almost like a blessing in disguise. It's like a mother nature's natural booster. There's not gonna be that many people left who are still COVID uh, susceptible and certainly no need for, for vaccines. The vaccine mandates can all be dropped now. Uh, the vaccines can be pulled off the market. We don't need them. Uh, and then we can we can do a post-mortem on the program, figure out what went wrong. Why were so many people injured and, and passed away after the vaccines? We got to find out. And the big question I have, uh, apart from that, is why are our authorities, like for instance, my CMOH, uh, the Premier of Alberta, Prime Minister of Canada, why are they forcing us to take a path that isn't effective as a way to buy our rights and freedoms back um, for something that most of us could easily treat at home. And you've shown that. You've shown that in a clinical setting with your patients throughout the pandemic that you were able to treat your patients and keep them out of the hospital. Am I correct? Absolutely. We were able to demonstrate that papers, this is the with the primordial protocols, the very simple protocols now with uh, GSK monoclonal antibodies and the new Pfizer Merck drugs. Uh, I mean, for sure, we're going to be better, but the original papers by Proctor, by Derwand and Zelenko, by Diddy. Rialt, Matthew Milian, uh, different areas uh, in the world, three different <coughs> all showed it worked, 85% reductions in hospitalization and death. And I, I think all the additional advances I mentioned give us that extra 10 points. Uh, now Omicron's easier. Uh, you know, we the, the problem is effectively handled at this point in time. That's the reason why the vaccines need to be dropped. There shouldn't be any limitations to personal freedoms. It's no different than a common cold. Uh, the premiers and other people can can you know focus on other uh, issues they need to attend to, but this this healthcare issue is effectively over. It would be nice if they would just take their fingers out of our lives, let us make our own choices, and get on with it. Because you're right, there are a lot more pressing issues that we have to deal with right now. Um, this shouldn't be our top priority. One question that popped up, and I remember hearing you speak about this uh, in Alberta. Here, there has been a very uh, fiery debate about natural immunity. And I know that uh, natural immunity has seen Omicron breakthrough, as has vaccinated immunity. Um, but there's there, there's one there's one question I saw pop up on the feed here, and that was, I thought natural immunity only lasted for five months. Now, as far as I'm aware, there were some studies done about uh, regarding natural immunity that were only go they were only on for five months. Uh, they stopped the study after five months, and then they said natural immunity lasts five months. Um, but what they failed to, and, and this is something you touched on, they failed to talk about uh, T cell retention. Um, do you mind just speaking on that a little bit for the people that are wondering about how immunity works? Right, so immunity has two major divisions. One is called humoral immunity, that's antibodies. <coughs> the other is cellular-based immunity. That's T cells, B cells, natural killer cells, macrophages, other defense cells. And what we know with this virus is just like SARS-CoV-1, that the immunity is lifelong. So with, with uh, SARS-1, uh, an individual today couldn't get SARS-1 again because it's lifelong. Just like with the wild type alpha and beta, you can't get it a second time. 
the body actually gives lifelong immunity. What happened with Omicron is it basically broke through the immunity largely because it doesn't invade the body. So the body's immune system is holding up. It's just not allowing invasion. And uh, so Omicron did break through, uh, but it, this, this, this it just basically uh, is reassuring news that uh, no matter what antibodies that we can measure, we can't measure all the antibodies, by the way. Like today in the office, I measured IgG and IgM against the spike protein, and I measured IgG and IgGM against the nucleocapsid. Just dozens of proteins, dozens. I, I can't measure, you know, the, 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 those assays don't exist. There are hundreds and hundreds of T cell <coughs> responses. We can only measure one in what's called the T detect test. We have to basically have confidence that our mother nature's natural immune system is there. It's very robust and, and complete. Our laboratory assessments of it are just, are, are really are tiny little representations of a much bigger process, this process of natural immunity. And it is robust. The one nice thing about natural immunity is if someone gets Omicron, it can be as brief as a few hours of warmth. That's it. Some people don't even feel it. There's a recent estimate out that about 40% of Omicron infections, you don't even feel because the natural immunity basically is held up. So I think the naturally immune do the best. I think second best are those who've received a vaccine. I think it's a pretty, Omicron's a pretty mild course. And it's my clinical experience that those who are still COVID naive, and there's very few people of that left in the United States, we have 330 million inhabitants. You know, CDC tells us 146 million are already naturally immune. And we already have 200 million have taken a vaccine. So there's very few unvaccinated susceptible people left, but those few that I'm aware of, uh, Omicron has been a little bit of a rougher syndrome. Again, nothing close to being hospitalized, but some of those patients have required treatment with uh, several oral drugs in combination. People do get sick. It happens all the time. It's been happening since we were, uh, since we've been on the planet, but I really don't believe that it warrants destroying lives, economies, businesses, relationships, families, and that's uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. So I, I hope there are some people watching in positions of authority who really, really take your words to heart. Because the first step to uh, getting back to a place where we're we're protecting our health is stopping all of this, so we can actually focus on our health, focus on our relationships, and uh, just start living as normal human beings again. And with that said, there's a, there's a bunch of questions that have come up here. Have you got a few more minutes to answer a couple of yeah, questions? Let, let, let's try to tackle them really quickly. I saw one, Chris, about uh, is there any way to detox from the spike protein? The answer is no. Right now, uh, once it's in the body, it looks like it gets sequestered either intracellularly in monocytes in the spleen or in exosomes, no detox methods uh, available. Uh, what else do you see there, Chris? Uh, what else have we got here? Okay. Oh, this is a, this one's a little bit scary, but we all know what's going on. It's kind of an elephant in the room, so we may as well talk about it. Dr. McCullough, they're killing people in hospitals here in Alberta because they are not giving them the right treatment. How do we change this? The hospitals are committed to protocols in a recent review by <coughs> Christine Burns published in JAMA. She, from the academy group as a review group, she's concluded that the hospital protocols are not trustworthy. This is a very important. What she means by that is they don't offer uh, uh, expert review, a commitment to updating. They don't offer uh, any good description of risks and benefits. 
So she concludes the hospital protocols are no good, basically. So families needed to demand what's called shared decision-making, that the families and the patients get to decide and share decision-making. And, and I think the key concept here is we should use medication reconciliation. You know, we use a broad array of drugs as an outpatient. They should all be continued inpatient. We should use monoclonal antibodies inpatient. We should be doing the oral nasal washes inpatient. You know, hospitals don't do that. Uh, we should be uh, uh, giving uh, the other oral drugs. We use uh, colchicine. Uh, we use uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or now the uh, Pfizer or Merck drugs. They should be continued inpatient. Uh, we should use doxycycline or azithromycin as we normally do, or they want to use a intravenous doxy <coughs> or azithro, that's fine. Uh, they should use uh, oral prednisone. I think dexamethasone is a really weak uh, uh, steroid. It's, uh, it's a glucocorticoid. It's not effective. Should use IV solumedrol, oral prednisone, full-dose oral aspirin, and then, uh, and then subcutaneous lomoicoid heparin, one milligram per kilogram. Uh, every 12 hours. So the families can basically make a list of drugs. They can go to um, uh, America Out Loud Talk Radio and McCullough Report. I've recently just updated the McCullough Protocol or just, you know, go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons or Truth for Health Foundation, and you can get these uh, protocols and write down the list of things that you want and start to demand them because the hospital protocols that they're sticking to are no good now. Uh, that's, that's now clearly understood. No wonder people are not doing well. And they should get, they, in my opinion, uh, in, the, in the hospital, the patients are undertreated. Uh, I mean, these are potentially fatal syndromes. Hopefully we won't have any more with Omicron, but if we get a rare one, they should be much more intensively treated. Here in Alberta, if you go to the hospital prevent, or presenting with COVID symptoms and test positive, they basically tell you to go home and come back when you're blue. There's never a discussion about health, uh, vitamin D, anything, nothing. Just go home, come back when you're blue. And I've heard these stories because I've become a hub of information somehow in Alberta here. You go to the hospital, uh, they put you on uh, possibly some steroids, usually prednisone or something like that. And you spend your time in the hospital with your breathing getting worse and worse, and they try and push you onto a ventilator. There is no talk about any treatment, and it is extremely frustrating. I've had a lot of families reach out to me throughout, throughout this whole thing, asking uh, how do they get treatment for their loved ones? How do they get them ivermectin and how do they get them the McCullough protocol and my answer is always the same once they're in the hospital and they're on a ventilator I mean they're it's in God's hands right uh, which is unfortunate that our that our healthcare system here in Alberta is following that protocol because it is literally killing people well Chris uh, guess, it's happening in the United States keep your eye on a dramatic case uh, uh, that uh, a patient soda and uh, key, uh, media Scientific correspondent Stu Peters and uh oh, we lost Dr. McCullough. As soon as Dr. McCullough mentioned Stu Peters, he froze up. Well, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties there. Uh, Dr. McCullough is linking in from Dallas, Texas. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or possibly the storm that we're experiencing here in central Alberta. Um, I'm going to resend a link to him right now and I'll see if I can get him back. If not, then I guess we'll have to wrap up. Uh, there are a couple questions that people have asked that I can answer. Um, and if, if you have other questions and we can't get Dr. McCullough back, please head out to 
um, America Out Loud and look for Dr. McCullough's podcast. Uh, there is a ton of information there, a ton of good information. All of the things, all of the questions that I've seen pop up on the feed here, um, he answers those in his podcast. And in addition to that, if you look at some of the things he's doing in the United States, I mean, this is a doctor that's testifying before Senate hearings uh, on behalf of people who are um, being left behind due to this whole COVID fiasco. Oh, there's Dr. McCullough back again. I think that was my my router telling me <clears throat> I need to get off and start doing patient prescriptions. So, okay. yeah, I think well, I'm going to have to get off. There's but only two have... more questions there, and they're both very quick. I've heard you answer them both before. So. Okay. Let me just pop those up here real quick. The first one is to do with shedding. I hear a lot of people concerned about shedding. Um, I know the answer you're going to give, but if you don't mind just speaking on that, uh, that would be awesome. You know, still hasn't been a published study on shedding. Dr. Banzel has published, as well as Dr. Senoff now, the the how oh, the spike protein travels in exosomes. <coughs> makes trap makes sense. It's going to be in saliva and in body secretions, uh, but there's still yet be a scientific publication showing that it really does anything impactful to the next person. What's your next question? So don't be scared. Viral load's not that high, so it's no, not. Anyway. I mean, I recommend no kissing, no sexual contact for a month. But you know, I have it. I think that we're gonna have to leave it there. What's the last okay. one? Okay, last one. I've still got loss of smell and phantom smell since COVID infection four months ago, uh, and I think that's supposed to. Say, and I have a strong link to disease. What do you recommend to be proactive? Now, I'm gonna take this a step farther and say proactive against COVID and any other disease in our in our day to day lives. Well, let me tell you, this loss of taste and smell, because the virus is in the nose, people keep forgetting it's a nose infection. The virus is replicating the nose. If people don't do nasal washes, I bet this person didn't do any nasal washes. The virus replicated there for two weeks and fried the olfactory nerve. That's going to take a long time for that to come back. People have to realize this is a nasal infection. You've got to get up there and kill it in the nose. Very important. Okay, I got to get going. Right on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. McCullough. It was a pleasure. And uh, from the uh, thousands of people that uh, watch, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us here in Alberta. And we would love to see you here. If you happen to be heading up this way, uh, please reach out and we'll be very accommodating and hospitable. Okay, I'll do. Bye-bye. Okay, good night. Well, there you go, Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Uh, in my newfound crusade for science and answers. Um, I'm going to do that as much as I can. I'm going to reach out to people who know what they're talking about, um, who have seen clinical evidence um, to back their statements. And I'm going to bring that to you and hopefully people in Alberta watch it who have some authority to make some changes because we really need some changes. We can't live this way anymore. We can't be segregating society over a vaccination that does not work. Um, for a virus that we're all going to get and as of now isn't much worse than a cold. And yes, I do know that COVID has affected people, uh, pe people's health. It has taken some people, but if you bother to take the time um, to understand what really happened there and who's dying with COVID, it becomes clear very, very fast that we made a big fuss about something that isn't really all that abnormal. The only thing abnormal the last two years has been our government's response to the problem. We've never had this response before. And uh, 
it's become pretty clear that it was the wrong response. So anyway, thank you all very much for watching. That was another long video, but I hope it was worth it. And uh, if you have any other questions, you can, uh, for Dr. McCullough, um, before you ask the questions, check out his podcast, listen to what he has to say. If you got to drive, if you're driving somewhere, it's going to take you an hour, listen to one of his hour long podcasts, because it really is a wealth of information. And the more information we can get out there, um, well, the less scared people will be and the better chance we have of changing something in this province and in this country. So thank you again very much and have a good night. Stay safe. Well, good. It's morning for me, but it's going to be afternoon for you, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir, Alberta. And uh, we have a very exciting guest again today. Uh, somebody who has been spending a lot of his time, well, actually, I mean, probably all of your time, um, doing what he does best, and that is saving lives. And in doing so, uh, he has, uh, how do I put this? I, I like to use the analogy, you've had your restaurant door is chained shut by the government because they don't like what you're doing and how they're doing it. And when I read, you know, when I read about this, like I, I couldn't believe it because the stories and the testimonials coming out from the United States, from people that you've helped and your team has helped. And now all of a sudden it seems like um, they're just trying to, trying to get you boggles my mind. I have to tell you, it's astonishing. I never thought I'd land up at the whistle stop cafe again. Uh, so cold up, uh, up in your neck of the woods. Uh, let me tell you, I'm down in Texas. It's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, but I, I could be the first doctor in modern history to be stripped of my entire residency and my fellowship, six years of my life, uh, multiple certification exams, uh, perfect uh, track record clinically, spotless uh, record from a practice-based learning perspective. The first one stripped for political reasons, purely for political reasons. Now, uh, to just help Canadians understand, in the United States, doctors have state medical licenses, just like hairdressers and dentists and veterinarians do. That's simply like a license to operate a, a business. And uh, my state license is fine. But uh, but the national boards and colleges, just like you have a royal college in Canada, they actually certify a doctor, you know, being qualified to do what he or she uh, does, in, you know, based on their training and their examination record. And it's rigorous. It's a rigorous, uh, uh, you know, a set of standards to meet. And that's what we demand in modern day medicine, both countries. Uh, and so prior to COVID, everything was fine. There was no difficulties. And then in 2021, in September, the American Board of Internal Medicine, which certifies all internal medicine and medicine subspecialists, probably about you know, 300,000 doctors in the United States, uh, they announced a COVID misinformation policy, but they didn't wow. define what misinformation was. They didn't define what we could or couldn't say. They simply said they're gonna have a policy and begin to uh, you know, search for doctors who they uh, believe are spreading misinformation. Then they went back in time and they picked statements I made in the in the Texas Senate testimony on March 10th, 2021. So they went ex post facto. They also picked out other statements and said, we think these statements are misinformation. 
uh, we're going to hold a hearing on you, a credentials uh, a meeting hearing. So uh, they gave me a chance to give a written response, and I gave a detailed 20-page written response. I cited every source of data. You know, as Canadians have learned to expect from me, I'm a national commentator on multiple TV stations, and I'm constantly citing the data so people can understand this is an evolving pandemic. Sources of information emerge. The virus is mutated. Then, they, then what happened is the American Board of Internal Medicine held a meeting. They wouldn't let me attend despite my request. And they concluded that, in fact, I should be stripped of my uh, credentials. And uh, they then brought forward the evidence that they thought refuted my statements. So they actually brought evidence out after the fact. So that they've, uh, through this process, had uh, procedural, uh, a tremendous legal procedural uh, errors and um, for instance, uh, there appears to be no equal protection. There's there's no signs that they applied this policy equally. Uh, they went ex post facto after the fact. They didn't allow due process, didn't allow me to, to attend uh, the meeting. Uh, and then most importantly, uh, they're violating my civil rights. You know, I have a, a right to be able to, to, to interpret information and, and give my fair opinion. In 2018, the Supreme Court upheld doctors' uh, rights to maintain free speech. And, uh, you know, I think this should be a warning to anyone that uh, I wasn't the only one singled out by the ABIM. It was almost all doctors who had given uh, U.S. Senate and state Senate testimonies. Wow, that's uh, one of the first things you mentioned there about politics. So we recently had a conversation with Dr. William Mackey. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Mackey's candidate? No, I'm not. Okay, so I'll send you some links after the show. But basically, uh, he's been kind of speaking out against this stuff as well, similar to what you've been doing. Uh, he was an oncologist. He actually ran the can uh, Cross Cancer Institute in Edmonton, which was arguably one of the leading cancer uh, uh, treatment clinics in the world. And they had tre tremendous success with uh, with some cutting-edge cancer treatments, one of them being the uh, radionucleotide uh, treatment, targeted treatments where these somehow these uh, atoms or whatever, they, they target individual cancer cells. Only the cancer cells have receptors for this, for this thing that they're putting in people. And it, and it blows it up. It gets rid of the cancer. It doesn't harm the cells around it like the uh, more intrusive uh, methods that we use now do. And he had an 85 to 90% success rate with uh, cancer patients that other doctors wouldn't touch. They just dumped it on the Cancer Institute. And, and end of life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and end of life cancer. And he, he cured them. And what ended up happening is due to some political maneuvering in Alberta Health Services with the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Alberta government, um, they, they effectively killed his practice, closed that treatment in that area and moved it to Vancouver under the supervision of somebody else because it was political stuff. The liberal government wanted the, the, the treatment center in Vancouver. So he realized that politics were affecting medicine to the point where people were dying now. And now he's been speaking out against the rest of it because he's not bound by this idea that he has to toe the line. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to practice medicine because he just took early retirement. So now he's speaking out against all of it, against the way COVID was handled, against the way the vaccine's being handled, the whole nine yards. And he mentioned very accurately that the decisions that are being made today regarding COVID and the vaccine are not about people's health. They are political. And this is something that we said right in the very beginning. And you and I talked about this when you're on the show last time. And now uh, I, I, sh I should let you know, in in Alberta, one of our ministers, Minister Casey Madu, who was the Minister of Justice at the time that I was jailed for 
daring to uh, break the public health uh, rules, he went public and said, this was never about health. It was always about politics and government control. Now we have actually a court ruling on the record in Alberta where Justice uh, Dunlop said plain as day that the health orders that were issued were illegal because they were political. So we had a public health emergency. It's supposed to be run by the CMOH, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, because doctors know best in a public health emergency. But she went to cabinet and the government and asked them what to do. So their political decisions interfered with medicine. And because that happened, the orders were illegal. And that's on the record in court. So at least in Alberta, things are starting to move in the right direction. And I'm hoping to see that in the States too, because like, like you said, you're not the only doctor that's going through this. There's uh, you know, there's, I can't even count uh, at least a couple dozen doctors that I've become aware of speaking out down there. So with that said, knowing this is about politics and not medicine and it's harming people, like where do, where do you go next? What's your, what's your remedy for this? How do we get past this? And also, um, who is who's supporting you to get through this with the with all the junk you have? Well, the, the next steps are um, I have to file an internal uh, appeal process with the American Board of Internal Medicine. A few days ago, I submitted a demand to dismiss it based on procedural and substantive grounds. I anticipate they'll completely ignore me. You know, as a lead up to this, Senator Ron Johnson called uh, Richard uh, Barron of ABIM out and said, listen, why don't you come meet with Dr. McCullough? Uh, let's face the issues together. Uh, the ABIM refused to even respond to him. Senator Bob Hall from Texas did the same thing because they know my Senate testimony was the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And it's to the best of my ability, based on where we were in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I've testified twice in the U.S. Senate. I, I co-led the five hour special U.S. Senate session on COVID-19, a second opinion, testified twice in the Texas State Senate, North Carolina, New Hampshire, um, Pennsylvania. Uh, and so I've been very forthright, forthright with Americans. I'm a frequent contributor on Fox, Newsmax, uh, OAN, uh, a variety of news stations have been on ABC. I've published 60 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID-19, one of the most published people in the field. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very honest uh, and open with the public on where we are in the pandemic. Uh, I clearly have the public support behind me. American Board of Internal Medicine doesn't. I'm gonna have to uh, mount an appeal, a legal appeal, call witnesses and, and likely file a lawsuit. And, and I don't expect fairness because the courts are corrupt right now. The courts many times are not even allowing cases to move forward. They say they don't have any standing, uh, but I have to take all the steps that I'm doing and remain one step ahead. So one of the things I've done is I've taken a position and helped in the formation of the wellness company. That sounds like something that was happening in Canada. What's uh, what's, what's going on with that? Do you want to elaborate a bit? Yeah, you're right. The wellness company was formed by Canadian e-commerce juggernaut Foster Colson out of British Columbia, a Canadian, a freedom fighter, founded this company, is headquartered in Florida, and it's a national healthcare company and it has important verticals, including uh, access to doctors at a very low cost. And uh, there's a monthly uh, maintenance fee, I believe a 999 and then easy access to doctors, very affordable, uh, uh, independent pharmacies that are linked, uh, in vitro diagnostics, imaging, uh, health and wellness, uh, nutraceuticals, supplements, 
uh, as well as uh, health media. Uh, and this is a terrific company. It's up and running. People are signing up in droves. Uh, even companies are offering it as a benefit. And uh, I can tell you, an alternative health system that will not deny patients uh, any of the medicines they need. No one will ever be denied hydroxychloroquine, ivernectin, budesonide, colchicine, any of the drugs that we rely on in COVID-19. No one's going to be denied uh, having an exemption for a vaccine. People are signing up in droves. So I'm the chief scientific officer. I'll be starting a new initiative where senior doctors provide uh, summary advice for patients and help them along. I'm very excited. So, um, you know, what happened is temporarily related to the ABIM decision to strip me, uh, I was actually terminated at my job here in Dallas as a practicing cardiologist. And it's a very uncomfortable meeting because the people terminating me didn't look like they wanted to terminate me. And, uh, you know, I have over a thousand patients a week calling for new appointments, jam packed schedules. You know, I'd be the last person you'd want to let go. But it's temporarily related to this. I'm not saying it's due to it. Uh, and, uh, there, you know, there's something very dark going on. I think people are starting to get that message. Yeah, no kidding. And to the point where people are actually willing to mobilize and create parallel systems so that yeah. they can actually have their needs met. That's exactly what I was going to say is it sounds like this wellness company is going to be another another tier because in Canada, basically, we couldn't go ahead and, and do ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, anything. But like we that. did. <laughs> yes. But we couldn't because it was federally regulated or they were basically told us, even though our healthcare system is done provincially, which I'm assuming is the same way in the states, right? It's all state run versus federal. So how do you skirt around that with the wellness company? Because that would be an interesting question for us here in Canada. The key is to have independent pharmacies uh, that are not subject to government interference like the big chain pharmacies, Walgreens and CVS. Okay. And then also to have no uh, attachments to insurance or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to have a cash-based system. The, the trick what Colson did, which was brilliant, is make it affordable. Everybody can afford it. So it's not out of reach, which I think was a brilliant move. Yeah. And um, I think that's, and so it works based on economies of scale. And there's a big reliance on nutraceuticals and supplements, uh, interest in deprescribing some of these drugs that just pile up in patients yeah. that aren't needed. Uh, focus on health and wellness. And uh, it's very exciting. I'm the chief scientific officer. Uh, we're now very active in this. So for me, it's a good transition. It's interesting because the American Board of Internal Medicine uh, actions appear to be uh, with the goal of silencing me, to try to silence me. And, and all they're going to do, just like the doctor you mentioned in Canada, is going to make me louder and yeah. more visible. Mm -hmm. uh, and really what's going on is I, I think they're willing to, in a sense, try to make an example out of me to silence the rank and file doctor and nurse. So you hear often that uh, people are becoming more aware. And I think they'd be a lot of people have been aware of this for a long time. We just haven't really bothered to do anything about it. But more people are realizing that healthcare isn't wasn't really healthcare. It was a means to have you purchase drugs. Like you have this, oh, you need this pill. You have this, oh, you need this pill. And some people have been left feeling like, well, okay, well, I have a pill to treat the symptom of what's wrong with me, but nothing is changing with my health. Um, so it's it's it seems to me like healthcare isn't really healthcare. It's just this giant machine 
that brings people in with the in Canada with the idea of free healthcare, and then sends them out with a prescription where they have to go and spend two thousand dollars a month on a drug. So it, the healthcare wasn't free at all, and in and a lot of cases, it doesn't seem to be about health. It seems to be about business. Is that something that you've kind of seen in 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 healthcare in your career? Yeah, I think in part that's going on, particularly in some areas, neuropsychiatric disease, as an example, uh, chronic pain syndromes. Uh, I, I agree. You know, in my field as an internist and cardiologist, 99% of the drugs I prescribe are generic. You know, I prescribe $3 drugs. So I, I don't think that's where um, the action is. Uh, but I think largely what happens is patients have lost their trust. The big issue is the vaccines. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. There are still doctors despite FDA warnings on heart damage, blood clots, and neurologic damage, despite large numbers of deaths within days of taking the vaccines, there still are doctors who are telling patients to take the vaccines. Some doctors actually refuse to see a patient unless they knuckle under and take one of these vaccines. And so patients have lost their trust. And that actually brings us right back to Dr. William Mackey. So he's actually um, spearheading a mission yeah. to do with the more now than 80 doctors who have died suddenly, uh, all unexplained, all in, uh, you know, good health, not in a uh, risk age group, anything like that. And he's gone through a ton of data and he's compiled this list of all these doctors that have just died mysteriously. And of course, this isn't listed. Uh, it's not limited to doctors. We have, we see this right in front of our eyes every day, all the time. And the only, I would like to ask, the people that are making the decisions to keep going on this, if we have all these unexplained deaths and something's happened now that hasn't happened in the past, what has changed that may have caused this? And should we be looking into this? I mean, we, do, we don't even have to say it's a vaccine. All we have to do is say something's different now than it was five years ago. People are dying suddenly. We need to find out why. And as long as they're interested in the truth, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a correlation made there. So that's one of the things that uh, Dr. Mackis is doing. So I'm going to, uh, after we're done here, I'm actually going to, I'll try and get you two connected so you can, uh, you know, have some discussions about this. Because it's, you're right, it's it's happening all over the place. And it blows my mind that doctors can see this right in front of them and continue to push this on people. And then the question comes why, but I don't even want to get into the why. I'd like to know the why. Absolutely, I'd like to know the why. Well, I'd like to know, but I don't want to ask. <laughs> let me. That, there, there's so much to unpack there. Let me. Let me start to to um, to synthesize a you know response. Uh, first off, our uh, CDC now on its weekly statistics indicates only eight percent of Americans are keeping up on these vaccines. Eight eight percent. I mean, ninety two percent of people have said forget it. So, I mean, I think that's an important proxy. I had a patient this week who had already taken four, maybe five shots, and she got COVID last fall, and she, and she is at risk. She's got heart disease and other problems. She looks pretty frail, and uh, and she got through COVID okay, and I asked her, is she going to take more shots? And, and, and you know, it's pretty obvious they, they didn't work, yeah. and uh, she goes, oh, yeah. She goes, I think I'll take some more if they if they offer some more, and I said, well, you, you know, you wear that, you know, there's blood clots and heart damage and neurologic damage, and large numbers of people are dying. She goes, oh yeah, I'm aware of all that. And then uh, I said, well, then why would you take one? She goes, well, it, they just don't seem to affect me very at all. And so I think people have that false sense that while other people are dying, they themselves can't be hit. And uh, you well, know, there was, 
there was a nurse uh, who did well with the first, I think, four shots in Saskatoon. And she goes into the pharmacy. She takes the bivalent booster and she's texting her daughter while she's waiting uh, to be observed. And she just dies right there in the pharmacy. You probably saw that case. Yeah. Um, so it brings up the point that people can do well with three or four or five shots and then die on the, that final shot. Uh, just a few things about death after vaccine. Uh, it's clearly happening uh, in Pfizer's court order documents released. Pfizer uh, had logged 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their vaccine. People are calling Pfizer and saying, listen, you know, my loved one took the, your, your, your product and, and died. Uh, our CDC VAERS system has uh, approaching um, 15,000 Americans that have died. A vast majority died within about four days of taking the shot. That could be as little as 1% of reality. I mean, that's hard to believe. It could be 1.4 million. The current uh, estimate on the underreporting factor comes in at 31. So that puts us at about yeah, probably 400 to 600,000 Americans have died. Wow. This would be worse than you know any, any medicinal product. Usually four or five deaths, it's off the market. Um, swine flu is 25 deaths off the market. World Council for Health has, a, has, has put out a pharmacovigilance report on June 11th, 2022, not only just from the, the uh, US VAR system, but the UK yellow card system, EU UDRA, uh, the uh, WHO VigiSafe system, and, and have concluded uh, the deaths are real, they're related to the vaccine, uh, and uh, the, all the vaccines should be pulled off the market. Now, McLaughlin and colleagues from Queens did the only analysis of the vignettes of what actually happened when people died. And he concluded with his team, this is in April of 2021, that uh, about 86% of the time, there's no other explanation. The only smoking gun is the vaccine. And what McLaughlin was reporting disturbingly is that who was dying was our seniors, people over 85, certainly over 75. So there may be many, many deaths after vaccination, which are simply not appreciated because people are towards the end of their life anyway. Mm -hmm. That's how this number could be so big. What's catching our eye is young people dying. You mentioned you know, 80 Canadian doctors. I mentioned the nurse in Saskatoon, uh, and we can go on and on. Um, so we're watching notable figures die after the, the vaccine. And uh, UK cardiologist, uh, whose father died after the vaccine. His father was a prominent doctor in the Royal College and uh, Asim Malhotra, the young UK cardiologist, a dashing uh, young man uh, who was promoting the vaccine on Good Morning Britain early on. He uh, spent about a year uh, you know, contemplating this and he was communicating with me. He did his own analysis. He published two brilliant peer-reviewed papers and concluded the vaccines are not safe. So Malhotra has come out. He's been on TV shows all over. They need to be withdrawn from the market. And both uh, both Malhotra and myself are featured in a film and is called Until Proven Otherwise. And you can find it on the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, VSRF. And in that film, we show how many people have died. And both of us conclude independently that the next person who dies suddenly and unexpectedly, where there's no history of antecedent terminal disease, there's no suicide, drug overdose, motor vehicle accident, they simply die, that unless the family tells us they have not taken a vaccine, we should consider it related to the vaccine until it's proven otherwise. So that's the reason why I think this is a very important statement. Let me give you a good example. Sean Kasten, 
Democratic congressman from Illinois uh, took the vaccine. He was doing a lot of virtue signaling and tweeting. Everybody else should take the vaccine and says his family is going to take the vaccine, his kids. And he takes his kids for the vaccine. And he indicates in the Hill that, in fact, he's vaccinated his children and his 17-year-old daughter, who he indicates was perfectly healthy before all this. She dies in her sleep. And Kasten is, uh, he looks glazed. His eyes uh, look glazed over. Uh, he's obviously shocked and remorseful that this has happened, but he can't bring himself to accept the conclusion that in fact, the vaccine is the cause of death. We're seeing two patterns now, death that occurs typically between three and 6 a.m. and then death during sports. Both times there's a surge of noradrenaline, cortisol and other hormones. And what's the substrate for this is subclinical myocarditis or heart inflammation that we now know in a paper by Mansugian and colleagues that probably 2.3% of people take the vaccine actually get heart damage. They form a small scar in the heart and then that's the site for which an abnormal heart rhythm is fatal develops and it's stimulated by the catecholamines or the, the adrenaline. Well, you had also mentioned too about, uh, about people being in car accidents or something like that. I actually question that too, because I actually know a lot of people who have lately been in car accidents and have fallen and they've just blank out. And I want to know whether or not if there's any deaths or any serious injuries that are happening based upon that. Well, I tell you, that's a very good thought. Um, we do know when the cardiac arrest happens and you see these films of the athletes, they go down like a rock. They don't even have a chance to put out their arm. They, you know, they break their skull break their neck. I mean, it's an instantaneous collapse. Uh, there now is a, a published paper in the peer-reviewed literature that COVID-19 vaccines get into the brain and can cause seizures. So someone can be driving and have a seizure. So on my Substack, uh, Courageous Discourse, uh, I give a vignette of someone who I know, someone who we know here in Dallas. He's a roofing contractor and he has a first time seizure on the top of a hotel roof. And he almost falls to his death. One of his coworkers save him as he's in the throes of seizures. Yeah. And uh, he's never had seizures before. He's never had any head trauma before. And the only smoking gun here is the COVID-19 vaccines, which are published to cause seizures. Wow. So I suppose, um, I can't be so bold as to say, I mean, I could, but Facebook will just close my account. I can't be so bold as to say this is specifically causing this because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. However, I am a bystander and I'm observant. I see these things going on. I know something's different than it was three years ago. And what my question is, we're doing something new in medicine. This, vac this vaccination is new in medicine, uh, technically new as in we've never administered this to large groups of population before. When we do that, are we not supposed to be um, erring on the side of caution and attributing these things to that medical intervention until we can prove it otherwise, as you mentioned? Is that not we the do. prudent thing to do? Right. So the regulatory guidance, and this comes through uh, the US FDA and and uh, you know pharmaceutical regulations that are followed. And I've chaired data safety and monitoring boards, two dozen randomized trials, it, it's clearly, if when it's temporarily related, anything within 30 days of a new product, it's due to the new product, period. 
period, no discussion, anything within 30 days. Now, beyond that, it takes some additional analysis. Uh, one of the things that uh, should be done here is to apply the Sir Austin Bradford Hill criteria for causality. And I'll kind of walk you through it. Your, your Canadian listeners up there, you guys are pretty sharp. So I'll go over this. Um, the first criteria is, is it possible from a biologic perspective that the vaccines could cause death? Is it is the mechanism possible? Well, sure, the vaccines are genetic. Uh, they cause an uncontrolled production of the spike protein. The spike protein was engineered by U.S. research, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, and uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Harvard, and other universities. And that's and they proven. Did the work in, they did the work in Wuhan, China, but this is a U.S. product. So the spike protein was engineered to be lethal. So the answer is yes, there's a lethal biologic mechanism of action. One of the questions you could ask is, uh, well, has there been autopsies that have shown that in fact, the spike protein is the cause of death? Yes, multiple autopsies, fatal neurologic, fatal cardiac and fatal thromboembolic syndrome. So, th so that's there. The second criterion, is it temporary related? And I said, yes, you know, almost all of it's within 96 hours of taking the shot. Now it can occur later on in smaller uh, rates, but it's strongly temporally related. The third criteria is, uh, is it a large signal or is it just, you know, one or two cases? Uh, you know, it's a huge signal. It could be millions of people. I mean, this is not a, a trivial thing. It's a huge signal. The next uh, uh, criteria is, is it internally consistent? Meaning, are there other things that are near misses that you're observing that could be fatal? Yes, the FDA says it causes myocarditis. Yes, it causes uh, neurologic injury like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which can be fatal. And then it causes blood clots, which can be fatal. And, and so we see all these, uh, this internal consistency with um, uh, injury syndromes that in fact are you know well known to cause death. And then the next criterion is, is it externally consistent? Are we seeing this in the US like we're seeing it in Canada and the UK and Europe and Australia? Yes, it's perfectly consistent across the globe. Last criteria, have we seen it in a randomized placebo controlled trial? Yes. So there the Pfizer clinical trials program in September of 2021 was kind of fully published in the journal of medicine. There's slightly more deaths with Pfizer than there are placebo. And uh, an analysis in the British Medical Journal by Freeman and Doshi and colleagues suggests that these signals were even there in the randomized trial data. So what I've just gone for your gone through for your listeners, and I'm trained as an epidemiologist. I train at University of Michigan, one of the best universities in the, in the nation. Uh, I can tell you that the vaccines are causing injuries, disabilities, and deaths according to the Bradford Hill criteria. That means on a more probable than not. And, and almost uh, almost certainly a clear and convincing basis that the vaccines are the cause of death. And so Malhotra and I are right that it is the vaccine until proven otherwise. I'm assuming you've had this conversation with uh, uh, Governor Greg Abbott. You know, government officials uh, have been variable in terms of meeting with uh, academic authorities like me. So Senator Ron Johnson, I've testified for him twice in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Senator Bob Hall, um, I've met and worked with uh, gubernatorial candidate Kari Lake in uh, Arizona, uh, uh, candidates uh, Scott Jensen, who lost in Minnesota, Doug Mastriano, who lost in Pennsylvania. 
Um, I've had, a, you know, an array of other authorities reach out to me, but Abbott is not one of them. Even when he got sick with COVID, I thought maybe he'd need some help. He took the vaccine. It obviously wow. didn't work and he got sick with COVID, um, but he never reached out. Um, I've had people in the former Trump administration reach out to me, but we just haven't had the, the handshake there. I'm willing to help anyone uh, in a government right now get on the right track of things because there are so many people who are on the wrong side of history. What you're saying, Chris, is very reasonable that we should be conservative. We should be, it's natural to be conservative. It's, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. It's better to cause no harm than plunge forward and cause more harm. And especially in the perspective that we were under the impression that COVID was gonna have people falling over dead in the streets and it never did. It was never the impact that they said it was going to be. It actually proved to be quite mild in comparison to other other things. So yeah, I. I I can't wrap my head around the why. Why do I still see billboards? Why do I still see um, or hear radio ads telling people to stick this in their children? Why do I see this? And the reason I asked about if you'd, if you'd uh, had a conversation with uh, Governor Abbott, our premier here, she's she seems to be very uh, freedom-minded and very, you know, very uh, pro-medical choice. Uh, I've had I, I actually have the privilege of being able to have conversations 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 with her. I don't stumble my words like that when I do. Um, she answers the phone when I call, and so we've talked about these things. And my question is: Have have you been contacted by anybody in the Alberta government to have a conversation with the premier of our province, Danielle Smith, in the last uh, few weeks? No, but I tell you, I'd welcome it. We should meet in the whistle stop. I've got to get a, a selfie with you for my uh, Instagram. Uh, let me tell you what, uh, we have a situation where I think the world's been overtaken with fear. You're right. The case fatality rates is published by our CDC and people under 65, way less than 1%. This was never a risk. Uh, and our governments ignored very important milestones. In the United States, uh, the very first group to recommend how to treat COVID patients was the Frontline Critical Care Network, FLCC. You may have heard about them. Mm -hmm. That was in March of 2020. They were ignored by the US government and they found a very early success with ivermectin. The next milestone was Dr. Pierre Corey testified in the US Senate in May of 2020, uh, telling Americans that steroids worked uh, in the hospital. and. Again, uh, Corey was largely ignored. Hospitals were slow to adopt steroids. Uh, the next milestone is I published the first outpatient treatment protocol, sequential multi-drug therapy for COVID-19 in the American Journal of Medicine, one of the best journals in the, in the world. And, um, uh, and uh, uh, I can tell you at that time, uh, it's still the most downloaded and utilized paper in the United States. You know, I was called by the White House, I was called by Peter Navarro, and later on, Senator Ron Johnson. But you know, our innovation should have been immediately adopted uh, by October of 2020. We had the first home treatment guide with the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Again, the the U.S. government ignored our efforts. We had started to form telemedicine networks, and then I think the big one that probably did the most harm was uh, ignoring the Great Barrington Declaration, which came out October fourth of 2020 it was signed by nearly a million people scientists experts and that was authored by dr jay Bhattachara, who's one of my uh in my group at fox news a frequent contributor 
Martin Koldorf, also in our group at Fox News from Harvard, and then Sunitra Gupta from Oxford. And the Great Barrington Declaration said, listen, we've got this figured out now. We can just treat and take care of the high-risk seniors, protect them, and then everybody else, go about your business. Don't close down anything. A whistleblower stays open. Churches stay open. And, and, and the Great Barrington made a lot of sense. We don't need to put masks on people who don't have the illness. Just protect our seniors. Now, the Great Barrington was not against vaccines. And it said right there, it said, listen, if there's a safe vaccine, it's going to be a, a limited use in our senior citizens. Nursing homes, fine. None of us were against vaccines. But when this thing rolled out, none of those important milestones were followed. We went on to testify in the U.S. Senate November uh, uh, 19th of 2020, then December 10th of 2020. I led the, the November hearings, Pierre Corey again in the um, December hearings. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we pushed as hard as we could. We went an entire year and we had a five-hour U.S. Senate uh, testimony on January 24th, 2022, where we called our leaders. We had seats for all our public health leaders. They didn't show up. They couldn't face us. They couldn't face the music of a second opinion from expert doctors, vaccine developers, scientists, patients, lawyers. We had it all laid out for them. We had the press there. No one showed up. And we were in the Kennedy caucus room in the U.S. Senate. So it's not like we were a rogue group. I mean, this was a, an official Senate activity. So I can tell you in America, we've done everything we can to bring the truth to the country. We've held uh, innumerable scientific meetings all over the country. Uh, I'm on the news as I am now, uh, you know, to an exhaustive level. You, you can tell the level at which I cite the literature, how I analyze mm -hmm. uh, things. Uh, you know, I, I hold myself up as, uh, you know, equal to none uh, in the scientific integrity uh, category. You know, we have a situation now where there's some type of operation being conducted on the people. Let's face it. Well, it's it, yeah. When it's this blatantly obvious that that this is no, it, it isn't about health. If it was about health, any one of those milestones could have been followed at any point throughout, and it would have changed the course of health for every person on this planet. They weren't followed. Instead, it was political decision after political decision. But I do, I do want to mention something that uh, it sh I'm sure you know this, and it probably encourages you, but there were doctors and nurses treating people in their homes, taking time out of their day after work to go to people's homes and treat them with the McCullough Protocol, and they saved countless lives in this province. I know some of those doctors. I heard the stories about them you know, going in the wee hours of the morning so nobody would know. But this is like something out of a movie where doctors have to work in the shadows against what the government says in order to save people's lives. And and the McCullough Protocol was uh, what was used the most here, as far as I know. So uh, it, thank you for that. It's true. And, you know, and, and I never said that drugs were perfect. We don't have large conclusive trials for any of them. But one thing we learned is we need to use drugs in combination. One drug doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, if we've learned anything, the, the new drug Paxlovid used alone, there actually is, it's so bad, the CDC has a health warning on it, saying that it extends the course of disease, makes somebody infectious longer. It has very unimpressive results in the real world studies. The clinical trials look pretty good, but uh, it, you know that's just how it works in clinical practice, over 40 drug-drug interactions, and uh, it's difficult to use. Hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, far safer. As things have shaken out, the analysis is here. The most important thing to do is to kill the virus in the nose mm -hmm. by using virucidal nasal washes, dilute uh, povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, colloidal silver, 
xylitol. Believe it or not, you can even use dilute baby shampoo, but you just can't let the virus multiply in the nose for, you know, for, you know, five days and then invade the body. So the nasal washes and then the oral gargles, you know, we, you know, Listerine works fine. Standard scope works fine. The dilute iodine solution. Every Canadian, even you backwoods guys up in the northern provinces ought to have a little iodine bottle. It's going to save your life. That also works against uh, the cold, common cold. So we learned with that that was most important. There is a layer of nutraceutical supplements which are not curative, but they're helpful, including zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, and then an over-the-counter drug in the U.S. called famotidine that we use in high doses. You know, those six things that I mentioned, everybody can have in a shoebox uh, at home. Don't even need a doctor. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's great to be able to, to to manage it, particularly the Omicron variant, which is uh, which is so mild. Now, the one supplement I think is deserves specific mention is vitamin D. And mm-hmm. you guys don't get much up there when it's minus thirty. Uh, every single paper on vitamin D shows those with good vitamin D stores, at lower rates of COVID, milder cases. There's even been a meta analysis suggesting there's, you know, really a preventive treatment effect. So. Now, we do feature uh, vitamin D. And, and then uh, beyond that, we talked about the antivirals, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, Paxlovid, or molnupiravir. But, you know, there's protocols worldwide don't even use those. And they're so not they're limited not as, to COVID. Yeah, yeah it, it, they're, they're, they're not essential. Uh, and I think all of them have a modest impact. The most dynamic drug, I would say, it took a while for us to learn how to use it. Um, but if I was stuck on an island and I wanted to, to, to survive, the two drugs I'd have would be uh, ivermectin. At 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day. You need to go five to 10 days on that. There's not a single trial that's actually used it like we do in clinical practice. The other drug that's really dynamic is in the next layer down, which is steroids, prednisone. So either inhaled budesonide or oral prednisone uh, works fine. We use aspirin as a blood thinner. Remember, the, this COVID itself can precipitate strokes and heart attacks. So we do want to use aspirin um, at 325 milligrams a day. And then we rarely nowadays have to use serious blood thinners like uh, Lovenox or Anoxaparin in uh, bedridden seniors, those with, um, you know, uh, bed bound in nursing homes. But that's called the McCullough Protocol. Uh, Looking backwards, it could have saved two thirds of uh, lives, spared two thirds of hospitalizations worldwide. The attribution here is that it probably has spared uh, tens of millions of um, of lives and, and and potentially hundreds of millions of, of hospitalizations. It's really an astonishing thought to think that early treatment did have the biggest impact. I mean, there, there's nothing to suggest masking did or hand sanitizers or, or lockdowns. And the inpatient care never really advanced. You know, current inpatient mortality in a recent study by Graspa and colleagues in JAMA uh, showed if somebody ends up on the ventilator, even if they're fully vaccinated, the mortality rate is 62%. That's with, with adjudicated COVID-19 pneumonia. I'm telling you, the vaccines don't stop uh, the illness. The, the two things that, that make it milder and prevent hospitalization and death are prior immunity, so a prior episode, and then early treatment. Those are the most important thing to remember. I'll, I'll end on a piece of good news. Uh, a, a paper by Chin and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, saw my Substack, Courageous Discourse, studied 59,000 prisoners, 17,000 staff. That's a great study because people are right with each other. You can't escape it. They know who got sick. They, they've got everything. And what they found out is that if you've already had COVID, 
It doesn't matter if you take a vaccine or not. There's a 0% chance of dying, zero. So you can take that to the bank. COVID-19 prior infection is the biggest checkbox you want to check. It doesn't matter if there's new variants coming out or anything like that, that would still hold true. It holds to this date through the Omicron, through the 2022 era. You know, we're praying that we the virus doesn't take a turn to become more virulent. And that's been predicted by uh, vaccinologist Gert Vandenbosch. But it hasn't been uh, observed, in my opinion. The virus has gotten progressively milder with the second and third and, and fourth infections. So with these uh, vaccines that are coming out now, are they still dealing with the original variant or have they actually changed it, supposedly, and whether or not they're even effective? And obviously, we've talked about they're not effective. But the new boosters, this is important for Canadians, the new boosters that are out, uh, let's take Moderna. Moderna is 50% of the old vaccine, which is completely obsolete and doesn't work, and 50% of the new bivalent vaccine, which is antibodies directed against BA4, BA5. So this new vaccine could generate potentially three or four new spike proteins in the human body, all set loose to cause damage. And the Moderna booster is set, the total dose is half of what it used to be. It's 50 micrograms. Pfizer is different. Pfizer is, again, half of the old obsolete vaccine and then half of the new vaccine, but they kept the, the old dose at 30 micrograms. You know, the bivalent boosters uh, were purchased by the U.S. government before the studies were done. It was already a done deal. And when the studies were done, we were disappointed to find out it was only in eight mice. And I can tell you the mice were miserable. They got Omicron anyway, even if they got the new vaccine, it didn't work at all in mice. There was this rise in, in antibodies against Omicron, but that's a false surrogate. That's not something to rely upon. And the FDA in its theater approved the EUA vaccine. And we look into it, the emergency use authorization doesn't strictly require FDA approval. So what we've seen is a lot of theater here. Emergency use authorization is a mechanism for the U.S. military. And, and the U.S. military and the Secretary of Health and Human Services rolled out these vaccines. So this is much more like a military operation. Honestly, the FDA really doesn't need to approve or not. That's theater. The CDC doesn't really need to put it on the schedule or not. That's theater. Uh, we know these are not uh, commercial products because people can't buy them. Insurance companies don't approve them or disapprove them. They're actually made by defense contractors. Uh, they're not specifically made by Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca. They're actually made by a consortium of defense biopharmaceutical contractors through DARPA, including the final fill and finish. One of the things that's really disturbing is not only are they pre-purchased, but there's no inspections afterwards for safety, quality, or purity. None. These roll off the line. People have no idea what they're getting. It sounds safe. With with all the information that uh, you, we've just been talking about, we usually post this video on Facebook, and I agree. Like, if we post this, chances are we're going to get silenced. So we usually end up trying to put it on uh, somewhere else. Like even YouTube silenced us, uh, BitChute, Rumble, a little bit better. How have you been silenced that way, even just uh, posting anything? I know you, you go on uh, Substack, but anywhere else that you would suggest to get the word out? You know, I had the largest doctor account on Twitter. Um, I had over half a million followers. I had some social media experts told me, you know, on some days I had like 8 million people 
reading my tweets, but um, the, the Twitter was actively unfollowing me. They were hunting me through the, uh, through the matrix, if you will. And uh, now we learn through American First Legal, through through the Freedom of Information Act, that Twitter was regularly meeting with the CDC and government agencies to craft the false narrative. So they were actually pumping out a false narrative through Twitter that the vaccines are safe and effective. And they were trying to silence anybody who would get in their way and actually uh, suspend their accounts. So my account has been suspended now for about a month or two. And Elon Musk uh, and his Twitter team has not restored me, even though I got a case number. Twitter says they're still working on it. And I think sometimes this, this could be a case of jealousy. You know, Elon Musk, even though he's got a lot of money, uh, he's not number one on Joe Rogan because you're looking at him. I'm the all-time record holder. So Musk has more money, but I must be more interesting. And and I've, you know, I've, I've told publicly, listen, I'm happy to meet with him and go over the issues. I'm the number one doctor on Twitter. Let me back on. My followers want to follow. I'm active on True Social, Getter, yeah. uh, Instagram. They all have active shadow banning programs on me. Uh, I've had Telegram blow up multiple times. Uh, I started Substack, which is actually a wonderful way of, uh, you know, in a, in a highly graphical manner, getting it out. People uh, subscribe and it keeps going and going. I'm on the major TV stations. I'm going to go on here in uh, an hour or so. So you can always find me out there. Um, I suggest you probably go ahead and put, put this on your Rumble channel, Locals. Go that way. Put links through the other social media to it. Uh, you know, Don't use my last name. Uh, try to find some other way. You're right. I'm being hunted on YouTube. Uh, there's no doubt about it. This You is can't post anything on YouTube anymore. Well, you know, I recently went on the show on Saturday. Go pick it up on Rumble and you can link to it. I went on with Alex Jones uh, on InfoWars. And Alex Jones currently has a jury award against him for a billion dollars. Yeah, a billion gonna... for, for his words. So that shows you how powerful it is. His words are worth a billion dollars. I told Alex, why don't they make it a trillion? And, you know, I agree with Joe Rogan famed podcaster joe rogan says alex jones is the most misunderstood person in the world i agree i went on alex jones i laid everything out uh in a highly visible evidence-based format uh and that's on rumble uh you could put yours on rumble and then link to it yeah. uh and uh uh you know we have a situation now where censorship and reprisal are off the rails the only thing that will satisfy, it appears, global governments is to take a shot in the arm as frequently as possible. Our CDC director was out yesterday tweeting that we should be taking a shot just two months after the last shot yeah. to get on with these new boosters. Uh, the human body cannot keep taking on genetic code that it can't get rid of. Human body cannot be loaded with this Wuhan spike protein engineered by universities in the United States. This is a disaster. The only way a human body stays healthy is to keep that stuff out of the body. Uh, there's no COVID emergency. Everybody's flying and going to restaurants. They feel fine. There's no monkeypox emergency. And by the way, in the United States, we actually have a continued declaration of both a COVID and a monkeypox emergency. Neither one exists. Wow. Well, with the declaration of emergency, that gives some extraordinary powers to some folks. So they like that. Um, it's true. So um, you guys, I'm going to have to sign off because we're at the hour, okay. but uh, it's been great to chat with you. I hope it warms up up there. If you want to come down to Texas, we can have a, a steak and sit outside. Well, unfortunately, uh, I can't go to the U.S. yet. 
Me neither. Yeah. Well, I can try. Our friends just got down. Maybe we can. But I have another proposal for you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Carrie and I have been talking about this more and more lately. So it's going to happen. We want to bring a bunch of doctors up to Alberta and arrange a meeting with our premier and cabinet. And Let's do it. I'd you, be happy to. Okay. I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm myself and Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, uh, Ryan Cole. We're the, you know, some of the most testimony worthy people in the world right now. Get Asim Malhotra from the UK. Uh, you know, we have we've done it all basically, and uh, and we're happy to help out. Uh, you know, my wife's Canadian. My kids are dual citizens. Yeah, we wow. want Canada to get back. Our hearts are broken when we see what's gone up there with our Canadian friends. It's as if Canada, not you guys, but as if Canada's lost its mind. Yeah. Okay. I got to go. See you thank guys. You All right. Well, thank Thanks. you very much. You're amazing. Thank you. Well, that was an amazing interview. It was awesome. You know, he always has so much knowledge and so much info to say. And we definitely need to get him and uh, the other doctors up here. So for those of you that may have a really detailed eye, you can probably see that it is now later in the day. As a matter of fact, it's actually dark behind my uh, behind my window because we ended up taking this long extended break before we were able to get back and kind of wrap up this video. And in the meantime, we had actually talked about when and uh, the I guess the the situation and logistics of getting the doctors up here. So what people may or may not know is there is only a certain amount of time that uh, the, the MLAs are actually sitting in the legislature, really just um, until the end of November. And then they're yeah. really on just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So we're going to try and reach out and see whether we can get something involved uh, on a Friday. And December might be way too busy. So I think moving it into January and then we'll get um, an Edmonton legislature calendar and try and figure out when we could possibly do that in January. I'd, I'd like to see it around January 16th. Yeah, January 16th, your court date. That'd be neat. Which, by the way, uh, is getting juicier by the day. Yes. Yeah, you've sent me a few things and they're like... No, I haven't. No, you have not. No, you're right. We'll edit that <laughs> part out. <laughs> That's all right. You're my spiritual advisor, so I'm allowed. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's ridiculous, the mm -hmm. stuff that uh, can actually happen. And uh, my birthday happens to be around that weekend, too. Of, uh, it is, yes. yes. And actually, You're actually going to make it another year. Uh, maybe. We'll see. Can't we make never thought you were going to make it past 33. I know. And here I am, 34. You just yep. never know. Amazing. Um, yeah. So I think that's, let's, uh, let's try and reconvene and get some time together so that we can do uh, a, a meeting with some other doctors. And in the meantime, I know we have a couple of other um, online, um, online meetings and online interviews that we're going to be doing in the next little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you who may or may not know, but we did want launch an official the Chris and Carrie Show dot com website as well as all social media, and uh, and obviously just after seeing what Dr. McCullough was talking about today, we may end up getting banned on Facebook. So yes, uh, because you can no longer say the truth. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good thing to. Uh, 
to point out. And uh, so we will be on Rumble and BitChute and a bunch of other things too. So um, we've posted that on social media. So otherwise you can just punch in, in, in your favorite uh, social media, the Chris and Carrie show. And it and should boom, we're right there. There we are. Put your boom, boom. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Well, then I guess it's oh. good night. Yeah. And, but before that, um, I just want to mention so, this latest interview we did with Peter McCullough, we're on a first name basis now, uh, Peter and I, just so you know. Yeah, Peter. I'm still Dr. McCullough. So, Dr. McCullough, um, he's a good doctor. He's a really good doctor, like world class. Um, the guy testifies in front of the U.S. government all the time. He's been doing it for years. Um, he's written tons of papers, peer-reviewed stuff. He's made a huge impact in medicine and health uh, to everybody's benefit. And the government and government organizations are going after him because he dared to be a doctor. Just like they are in Alberta with Dr. Manakis and uh, Dr. Nagasi, Dr. Gary Davidson, Paul Alexander, Roger Hodgkinson, Dennis Baldry. I mean... Charles Hoff, the list, the list goes on and on and on. Is there more Eric Payne, Ryan Cole? Like I, we could just, we could go for hours talking about doctors who are trying to be, uh, they're trying to silence. And whether you agree with them or not, the one question you should be asking yourself is, first of all, actually there's two. The first one is, why are they trying to silence doctors? Mm -hmm. And the second one is, um, shouldn't doctors be allowed to participate in science. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. Like right from day one, they they should have been allowed to be doctors. Yeah, and not be told not to uh, to administer certain certain medications. Yeah, and right now they're being told if you don't do exactly as this organization says, um, you're not a doctor, and that's like complete BS. And it's harming people. It's killing people. It's still happening. Nothing's changed really. So uh, these are some important questions that have to be answered, I think. I-M-H-O. I-M-H-O. in my humble opinion in Texas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All I heard was H-O. Oh, I thought, <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was, yeah. That's your car. An H-O? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's an S-H-O. Oh, right. Yeah. Show for show. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's all I've got. Is you got anything else? No, that's that's about it. Okay. Yeah, I got to go and eat some dinner. Go over to well, my, go, go visit my family now. I've been eating nonstop all day because I haven't been smoking little cigars. So now I'm just stuffing my face to distract myself. Awesome. I'm still drinking the same coffee I had this morning. Hey, you know what? So am I. But I'm drinking it out of a Yeti that yes. I got from. Kevin oh, from the podcast, Kevin Unscripted, where you can find an interview that he did with me. And uh, I got to say, this Yeti is awesome. I do not like reusable cups because they just, people leave them all over the place and I end up washing them and I think they're ridiculous. But this cup, the coffee's still warm. It's like six hours old. I know. it's. I mean, I it's not hot, but it's warm. It's I a great cup. Place. Use it all the time. And Kevin Unscripted, his podcast is great. Um, he really does a good job of kind of digging into things and having real conversations just like Carrie and I do. So uh, if you get a chance, head on over to his, his uh, page and check his stuff, stuff out. Too. And he's also Thank on, you. he's on Spotify, which we're going to yes. the process of getting on Spotify as well. So it's, yeah. uh, 
I guess, yeah, that's one of the places you got to be, you got to be on that because for the most part, we're, you know, we put in some, uh, some tables and some graphs, but uh, for the most part, it's just us talking. So you can easily listen to this while you're driving. And especially yeah. we seem to be driving across Alberta for three or four hours at a time. So that's usually when I catch up on my, my uh, podcast and stuff. So. No, it works out great. So yeah, we are going to put our stuff on there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we'll put it right next to Joe Rogan. Yes. Can we do that? Can we can we sit beside Joe? We'll be at like 1.4 million and we'll be at like six. Oh, 000. perfect. Yeah. We'll be right close. So yeah. <laughs> you might even find us linked in his uh, page. So that'd be great. Yeah, referenced. Reference material. <laughs> yeah. As in, who are these punks talking about <laughs> me in their basement? <laughs> Love you, Joe. They drink beer out of and coffee. Six hour old coffee. Ooh. All right. All right. Let's wrap this up and uh continue on your evening. Okay. Sounds good. Night, everybody. Good night. Thank you.